How's it going, guys? All right. Hey, Sean. Been a while. I think this is secretly a conspiracy because every time you and I talk on a podcast, it's I've got to talk Marvel. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's the uh, I, I don't know. It's it's the very unsubtle irony of having you talk Marvel and having David talk DC. <laughs> Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro and I'm joined today by two of my buddies. I've got from 11 O'Clock Comics and Marvel Noise, Mr. David Price. Hello. And from Raging Bullets, Mr. Sean Whalen. Hello. And they were kind enough to come on with me today. Uh, Sean and David and I have interacted quite a bit over the years, but we haven't had that many chances to speak. In fact, this today's the first time Sean and I are getting a chance to actually talk, even though we've sent messages back and forth many times in the past. Uh, and David and I uh, met face-to-face once, but... Uh, other than messages back and forth, this is only the second time we're getting to speak to each other. So it's a nice thrill for me to have you guys on. Happy to be here. Yeah, me too. It's a definitely, I'm looking forward to this. Well, it's 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 ironic um, actually talking to David with how long we've known each other because we both knew each other well before we were crazy enough to get behind mics. So <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's like uh, almost eight years later now. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I guess so. Damn. Well, David, you started out on Comic Timing, right? I I started out doing a segment for um, Bruce Rosenberger's Comic Cast. Uh, I did a couple of segments for his show, and I called into Derek's Comic Book Noise a couple of times. Um, but I, I my first official co-host uh, career took off with Comic Timing. I was there for a couple of months, and then. Um, and and then Vince and I started up bullpen bulletins in uh, uh, late early September of '06. Okay. And then when uh, when we stopped doing bullpen bulletins, Derek offered me Marvel Noise, um, and then a few months later, Vince got the itch again, but didn't want to just um, stay. Not just be limited to Marvel, uh, especially since it was post-Civil War and there weren't a lot of things really shaking his tree. So he um, he wanted to talk about everything. And that's when uh, we also grabbed Chris Neesman and Jason Wood. And it's been 11 o'clock comics since then. And I still do Marvel noise every other week um, when I can. Otherwise, Steve and or Derek um, basically host the, the show. Right, right. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Your your uh, it seems like as eleven o'clock comics has picked up steam, your your role on Marvel Noise has kind of decreased a little bit to the point of you're just kind of the, you know, the Ed Sullivan of the, the show now. Guy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. This is what the guys are going to talk about, and I'll see you later. Yeah, pretty much. But I, I, you know, I was I was Sean and I were just talking a little bit, and I was saying when I first got my iPod in in two in oh seven. And shortly afterwards, I discovered the world of podcasts, and I, I was like a pig in shit, basically. Uh-huh. You know, I, 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 it was, you know, because I, 
I'm a little, I'm older than you. I'm like about, I'm about 10 years older than you. Okay. And I started collecting when I was like 11 years old in 1972. And <laughs> there you go. So I'm about 11 <laughs> years older than you. Or actually, no, 70, I'm born in 62. So I'm 10 years older than you. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm off on my own dates. But uh, I had two of my best friends were collecting with me back then. And it's still two of my best friends to date, but they don't, they no longer are involved in the hobby. And I stopped collecting in the, you know, around the time of crisis. And I got pulled back in at about the time of the death of Superman, but it wasn't the same world because I didn't have my two best buddies there with me, doing it with me, talking about what's going out, you know, coming out and everything. And then when I discovered podcasts 13 years after that, it was like, now I'm back in, in that element again. It, you, you know, I, I was just talking to Sean about like perceived friendships with people you don't even know because you're listening to them talk and everything. That and, is very true. And, and I mean, no doubt in my mind that, that you and I had a, uh, had a perceived friendship before you even knew who I was. Because when I came over to you at New York Comic Con and I started talking to you, you were very friendly, but but you know you were kind of going about your business, <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know, I want to talk a little bit. Here. <laughs> it's like, where are you going? Are we running away for it? No, it is, it, and it's that is. Um, there seems to be, and I know Sean is extremely friendly, also, but there are definitely, and I, I appreciate everybody who listens to the podcast and and the guys absolutely um absolutely do too uh unfortunately there are times where there are some people if if i'm very protective of my friends so if if i'm joking around and and i throw a dig at jason or i'm ribbing vince about something if someone who none of us have met before but listens to the show tries to also joke in on my friends it's I, I'm, I'm kind of like, you really haven't earned the right yet. And and you don't know them like I know them. So it's kind of, it, it's there are some listeners who think that um, it's kind of like the cable guy. It, they, they're just, they're, they're, they're your best friends now. They heard you on a podcast. They know everything about you based on what you said on a podcast. And they think they are um, more friendly or more, um, they... There's just there's a boundary there that they've kind of overstepped, and and I try to. But if I, that's usually online. If if I see you at a convention and you actually come up and introduce yourself like you did, Paul, then then I, I still have my mindset where I know where because that was that was Thursday evening, right? That was the preview yes. night. Yes. So there was still so so I was still Jason had to get all his his ducks in a row for his commissions, and I was trying to make sure that everything I had. I had a million things going on in my head that we needed to get done, and I definitely didn't want to um, give you the cold shoulder. So I, 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 I get, I know that I was that I was also uh, multitasking. I'll say, but yeah, no, there, there are definitely. If, if you come up to me at a convention and you go, "Hey, you know, I love the show. Listen to the show," then I will, I will walk and talk with you. I won't just say, "Hey, that's great, thanks," and and I'll keep walking. But yeah, there there are definitely times where I know that um and and we've been to a few conventions over the years and and I know that uh um if if I if I'm on a mission, if 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 and especially if something's time sensitive where we're, we're we need to go somewhere or uh at Chicago it's difficult because usually one of us are trying to get tattoos and and therefore we have that window that that stringer's available. So it it 
it may look like we were being a little, um, I guess aloof just, you know, they didn't have time for me, but no, that, that, that's, I never want that to, to be the impression I give somebody. I, I want to make sure that if, if they listen to the show, if, if you come up and introduce yourself to me, that I want to make sure that, uh, that I appreciate that I show you that I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Yeah, well, for what it's worth, you you never gave me the impression of blowing me off or anything. But I'll, I'll just tell you my my perception of it, and kind of it was. I mean, I guess we had interacted a little bit at Facebook up on Facebook up to that yes. point. So you may or may not have had a mild idea of who I was. Uh, but I, you know, like you like you say, you know, listening to the podcast for a couple of years and and some interaction, you know, I, I definitely had a greater sense of who you were than you had of who I was, and. I went over and you were, you know, you were very receptive. You shook my hand. You said, "Hey, you know, we there was I don't even recall who it was. There was some creator that you walked up to, and then the three of us actually had a little conversation, which Mah- I hope Mahmoud Asra. Okay, and and but but it, you know it seemed to go smoothly, and then I kind of you know you said, "Oh, where are you going?" I said, "I'm just killing some time. You mind if I walk with you?" And you were like, "Yeah, no problem." But you know you were going about your business, and okay. I wasn't keeping you from going about your business. And then as we walked over. We ran into Jason and Chris. Yep. And I introduced myself to the two of them. And Chris and I started getting into a conversation about uh, Neil Adams. Okay. And at that point, you and Jason, who obviously had your agendas, kind of, you know, gave your apologies and moved on to other things. And I talked to Chris for a while. And then that was the night. You know, I would say I probably spoke to you guys combined for about maybe 15 minutes. Okay. But it was, you know, it was good. It was a chance to meet some guys who I'd been listening to, and, right. you know, it all worked out well. It was certainly it was an icebreaker. No, uh... Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of look at it this way. I think that through the fact that we do this podcasting, there's people, because they're listening audience, they are friends, but there's not the two-way interaction. And we can't have, as podcasters, that same relationship until we've had the opportunity to have that interaction you know, where we get to have the other side of it and get to know the people who listen. I've had it happen at cons before where there's people like on the first day of a con, um, we walk up and we have a a nice conversation. It's friendly. It's clear they're a friend because they've listened to the show, but they don't become a closer friend or somebody that I feel like I have an affinity for until you've had like multiple conversations at the con. You know, you get to know the other side. (laughs) You get to know that person. Um, That's one of the nice things. And I sometimes that's happened through email. Sometimes that happened through people calling into the show, you know, where you get, I get to see the other side and get to know that person. Um, and that's where I think it turns into a different sort of relationship than just being um, podcaster listener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's definitely different levels with that. You know, I've, I've been doing this now for about two years and I, I basically joined an already established show. And eventually, kind of, just through t- scheduling and all, I'm I'm the one guy who's on it every week now. And sometimes the other guys are here, sometimes they're not. And like I was saying to Sean just before you got on, David, uh, when they're not able to come on, I like to try and take advantage of it and get guys like yourselves and and get a chance to to shoot the breeze with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, which I, I feel like is an advantage. It gives more. I, I think it gives more exposure all around. You know, my listeners get to hear. You, if maybe they don't listen to you normally, and then maybe you know, people who would listen to you might migrate over to my show. I think that you know that always works out nicely. But it also gives a different point of view that you don't always get. It's it's just a, a way to to expand things, which I, I like. But, I agree uh, with that. 
but but you know, but I, I actually started making my point. I, I kind of lost where I was going with it. I uh, but there's, there's there's certain listeners who I've interacted with a lot over the last two years that that have become friends and that I've gotten to know fairly well, and then I've seen them at New York Comic Con and talked to them and and you know, like you say, they they, they it takes that next step. And then there's other people who, you know, they might send an email or something and, you know, you know them a little less. And then there's other people who listen and you've never met at all, but they still think they know you. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a strange, strange setup. It is. It is. But it's fun. That's that's all. Always, I, you know. Always it is. I mean, it, I look at it as it's I, I get to have a conversation with three of my best buds um, once a week. And I, even, even when it was just Vince and I, it was basically it felt to me like we were letting people eavesdropper overhear our conversation. The fact that other people wanted to listen to that and, and, uh, and glommed onto it is even better. But there was, if, even if, even if we weren't recording and we were just the four of us getting together to talk, we would still do that. Recording it is just, um, something that, uh, we get to share. Mm hmm. It, it's it to some sometimes it almost feels like the recording of it is just an excuse to force us to do it. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm I'm content just to get together and talk to my friends and talk comics and you know just go through all of this stuff. But then you know you record it and it it, it creates the illusion of having a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> I can't get my co-host out of my head, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, that, that's the the other thing that that surprises me sometimes is how you hear you know you hear these shows and some guys just have such good chemistry together that you just assume oh these are guys who were friends for twenty years and decided to do a show, and then you find out no nah, they met on the internet and they had never met face to face and. You know, they they just hit it off and they do a show, and now they're best friends. But at the time, they didn't even know each other. That is, uh, that's um, Vince and I. I mean, we Vince and I, and and even Sean, we only met um, because of Brideemer dot com and his uh, subdomain for the CGS board. And and it was uh, it was after CGS started, and and he had the little forum on. Um, on, on his website, and I didn't meet Sean and Vince until CGS 100. Um, and then uh, I didn't see, I don't think I saw them again until 200, and then um, we were all at uh, Wizard World Chicago in, in 2006. Um, and then I've seen Sean at a few conventions since then, but I didn't, and I, Chris Neesman invited me and Vince out to... Um, to Chicago for that Wizard World, and uh, and that's when I finally met Chris face to face. And I didn't meet Jason until um, uh, either the first C two E two or maybe it was a New York Comic Con. But I didn't. I mean, I, I talked to Jason for months before I finally met him face to face. Yeah, well, I I do this show with my buddies Scott and Bill, and we had had well Scott and I had been interacting on Facebook and. I actually had written in a couple of emails to the show and then one day he invited me on and then the next thing I knew I was co-hosting it with him. And then he says, oh, you mind if I bring my friend Bill on tonight? And then he came on and now he's a regular co-host on and the three of us do it together. And we've been, you know, I've been doing it for about two years now and we had yet to meet each other face to face until this summer. I took my kids down to Florida. We went to Disney and Scott actually works for Disney. 
Oh, and okay. Bill Bill lives over in Tampa, so Bill took the ride over, and the three of us, along with my two kids, spent the day over in uh, Magic Kingdom and Hollywood Studios, and just had a ball. But nice. it's it's weird, you know. We didn't meet each other face to face till August, but they're you know two of my best friends. So it, yep. it, it's a weird thing. It is. Uh, so and I guess that's uh, we can go on and on and talk about the nature of podcasting <laughs> all night. Yeah, I remember you guys were going, talking about it on Eleven O'clock Comics one day, talking about uh the perceived intimacy that people have and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We de- and, and usually that, that happens when, um, w- usually that'll happen when we have, I want to say complaints. Um, it's, I, I, and I, and sometimes I have to, um, rein my wife in a bit because she'll want to get on the form and, and basically say, these dudes basically they're not charging you for this you don't have to listen and and for you to to sit here and and basically take the free entertainment and then feel you have some sort of right to bitch about it um whether it was the quality whether it was the conversation whether it was back whatever and and uh it, it just when that seems to happen quite a bit or or um Many times in an episode thread, or or in general from from an episode we 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 had, um, that's kind of when I think you'll hear us uh, talk about um, expectations that, that that other people have that that, that listeners have. But yeah, it, it it definitely gets that way sometimes. Two two points that come from that comment is to come to mind. First, uh, on your show. I think the four of you are, I think you stand out as particularly passionate about this hobby. And I think sometimes that might inspire equal passion from people who are listening to you, but you don't know who they are and they really don't have a right to, to, to call you to task about it. So I kind of agree with that, but I think it's almost, it's almost a compliment in some way that you inspire that kind of passion in people. I think. I'll have to Uh, look at it that way. (laughs) <laughs> it, it certainly doesn't make it worse uh but just uh the other thought you know from the perce- perception point of view is somebody who i've yet to ever meet face to face but seems really really cool to me is what renee by the way oh thank you <laughs> okay and i keep stepping on you sean did you no, <laughs> you're fine um don't you find though like seriously as you'll, you'll understand it's paul being a podcaster that the people that are the complainers, the they're really a very small percentage they of are. your audience base. You've got, um, I, I really feel that there's this larger silent majority that are people that just like to tune in. They just like to listen. They get it. That's kind of their thing. And that's, I mean, I love the people that love the full interactivity. There's your, you know, your diehard people that, that take it beyond the show and actually kind of make it something their own. And they, you know, do their own thing with it. And maybe they go and develop their own podcasts blogs, whatever, and they interact with you that way, and, and they're very largely positive and behind what you're doing. But the complainers, the people that have been, at least in my experience, and I'm, it's got to be the same for you guys because of the quality of what you do, um, it's it's a, s- a small group of people that just don't get it. <laughs> and and, yeah. and I've, I've often found that usually those are the people that maybe my show isn't for them. Um, it I don't let that change what I do. Right. Because, you know, ultimately, in the end, if you do that, if you if you take those isolated comments and let it affect how you do this, 
you're going to lose the people. First of all, you're going to lose your passion for doing it because you're no longer going to like doing it. Right. But second of all, you're going to lose that core group of people that tuned in from the beginning because they get you yeah. and get what you're trying to do. And they're there. And, you know, I really feel they're a lot of times the silent majority. They're the people who you don't really hear from because they can't. Um, because, you know, they're just driving into work, listening to your whatever that stuff is. Um, and I, I do feel that that winds up being a majority of your audience. And you end up losing them very fast if you if you don't acknowledge that they're there and you need to protect them. I yeah, think well, we first realized we had a... When when Jason opened up the uh, the 11 O'Clockers to, um, to SurveyMonkey and gave out the link, we he was hit with... With more votes, um, with more nominees, by doing that than the years prior, when it was only open to people who were registered on the forum, because you either have people who don't do forums, who don't like the interaction of forums, who don't want to just you know don't have time for forums. But if you if you give somebody a link and say, listen, here's here's um, twenty three categories. Uh, what do you think is your favorite? And and it, we we he was blown away by the amount of um, of votes that uh, just the amount of people who who uh, who voted. And yeah, we definitely there are there are definitely more people out there than I mean yeah, we can even just look at the downloads. There are definitely more people who download the show than interact with us on the forum or even Twitter and Facebook. And then with Sean with your show. I don't even remember where I heard a, a criticism. It might have been in an email you read or something. But one of the criticisms I, I specifically recall hearing, and, and the reason I remember it is because it stood out to me at the time, was somebody was complaining that you were too positive, that you found, <laughs> you know, they, oh, yeah, you, know you, you never complain about anything. You like everything. And I thought, but 95% of your audience is probably listening because you're presenting things in a positive way. And when you see something that's bad, you do point it out. But that's not the focus of your show, right? Well, we also don't talk. We also don't talk about everything. I mean, first of all, we go on and on and on. Um, but um, we don't. We pick books that we are passionate about having a discussion about. So it typically, I as a comic reader, if there's a book that's kind of mediocre on my stack, I I just kind of move on. You know, it's I'm glad I read it. It's not a book that I'm going to do rereading of because it was like, it was okay. You know, it's time to just move on. Um, the stuff that I really want to talk about is the book that blew me away. So yeah. for, I mean, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with podcasts that are more critical. I don't mean it that way. It's just, this is the way I am as a reader. So it's the way I present myself in a podcast. It's one of the advantages of different podcasts. People view things differently. Um, and their lens into how they like to present themselves and how they view any artistic medium. You know, there's people who have wonderful podcasts that are incredibly critical <laughs> that I really enjoy. Um, it's just not the way that I look at it. Right. And it's, it's fun to have that difference. Um, if you look at how many podcasts are out there, none of them are alike. <laughs> they really aren't. There's, there's, yeah, they all have their own little unique bent to them. But uh, to, to get off the podcasting thought, what are you guys reading lately? Oh man, uh, I'm first issue in, and I'm I'm really liking uh, the new Punisher series. Um, Nathan Edmondson has who who, um, who did who is Jake Ellis, and and I think did Grifter with the new Fifty Two. Um, he took Frank Castle out of New York City. 
and Frank is out west now. And um, and the art is by um, Mitch Gerards, and it is it it's fitting. It's not it's not Steve Dillon. It's not the um, the gritty stuff that uh, that Garth had when they were doing um, Punisher Max. It was uh, it it just it's it's kind of in the same style as as Chris Somney or mm. um, or Doc Shaner. Um, I'm still enjoying Superior Spider-Man. Have been since since day one. I mean, I've been enjoying Slot Spidey since um, since One More Day and and uh, uh, or Brand New Day and and when he, when he was with the rest of the Webheads. Um, the uh, Indestructible Hulk, um, Wolverine and the X-Men, and um, I have Undertow to read from Image soon. I'm 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 digging Saga. Um, yeah, I, I have I have Saga from issue one sitting in my Regina pile. Oh, dude, no, no, it's it's too good to have sit there. That's what I keep hearing, and I just you, keep I keep not finding the time, and I have to make the time. At least the first six issues, and then if you know, if I mean, because there was the most recent arc, um, that that kind of slowed things down. I mean, it was still good and it's still gorgeous, but it was it it didn't have the same um, uh, movement that the first. The first arc did, um, but didn't you it, find you couldn't put it down? Like, because after you're locked in with the first six issues, I agree with everything <laughs> you're saying, but I'm still like I'm so invested at this point. Oh yeah, I mean it was it, it may have felt slow moving, but I got to the end of the issue and I'm still like I, I need the next one now. I don't want to wait. I, I need it and and it it yeah no it's it is it is a fantastic series. Um, Umbral also by Image, uh, Black Science by Image. The the um, the yeah that's that's i mean those are my what i gotta read when they come out more or less although i am behind on umbral that's a pretty pretty sizable list it's uh i i fall behind so easy i have so much stuff in my to read pile oh yeah and now unfortunately it's it's not i mean i still have a ton of physical books but now i have a digital regime it's just it's it's insane i can't i mean i have more things in my comicsology library that I haven't read yet that, uh, and then I come across things that I want to reread. I, I just reread, um, man of steel for this. And, and I, I read, um, the else worlds, the nail, mm. and, and I want to get back to, uh, I want to do a reread on new frontier. So, I mean, I just, th- there's things that I know I have so much stuff to read, but there are things that I really, really enjoy that I want to reread. Yeah. The, the evergreens, Yes. Yep. That's a. Uh, I, I actually, you know, which is almost like the focus back of the show. Like two seconds. I want to remind my wife not to print. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, shit. <laughs> but it, it, it's almost People like the, the focus of this sh- focus of this show is, you know, old, old books. Yeah. And I kind of was. I, I had this whole stack of new stuff to read, and I just kind of just said the heck with it and put it all aside. And I started reading. I, I went into books from 1972, and I was just going nuts reading a ton of them. You know, thing ninety nine percent of which I had read, you know, in the past, but just right. enjoying going over them again. And then uh, this weekend, I decided let me catch up on Superior Spider Man, and I just finished issue twenty seven ten minutes before we got on the line here. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm really enjoying the heck out of that. Yeah. I don't get any of the criticism that Slot's getting over that series. I, I really I don't. Mean, there was a um um Bob Ingersoll who who's an attorney. He used to write for um. Comics Buyer's Guide. He has a column called "The Law Is a Ass," and he um, 
he actually wrote a column last week for Comic Mix, which is where he, he's doing most of his writing these days. Uh, and and he, he actually talked about um, looking at it from, from a lawyerly perspective. Um, the which things you, which that, you would think I should be able to do, <laughs> actually. <laughs> well, he's, he, yeah, but see, that, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, you don't have to worry about that. It, it, this is escapism for you. You know, you don't need to. I mean, yeah, there are definitely, I mean, there were, um, Renee and I watched... Now you see me last night and, and they were on, um, they were going North on the FDR, which is fine. But then they got to some bridge that in all the years I've been taking the FDR back and forth to Brooklyn, I've never seen before. So I have no (laughs) idea what the hell road that was. And that was like, that was kind of eye rolling. And uh, I don't, but I mean, yeah, if you're, and no, you're right because I can, I can read things about people doing something on a computer and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I would never do that at work or, or just, but I mean, yeah, but I, I, for some reason, if I'm reading Spider-Man, I would definitely not look at it from the point of view like, well, um, that was basically, Doc kind of just murdered that dude. It wasn't self-defense. He just, he seriously ended that man's life right. for no reason. And, and at the time as I was reading it, even at that point, I'm slot has me so wrapped up in seeing um, Otto being redeemed that when he does do something as drastic as that, it really doesn't register with me, and it should. But I'm like, I at that point, I guess I'm still thinking that well, that's that was an Otto thing, and. It, it's just it's so weird, but but you're right. It I I why people would that those are the folks who who just want to complain to complain. I think so. I, I, you know, and, and I I heard an interview with Slot. I'm trying to remember which show he was on. If it was on Word Balloon or I don't rec- even recall it. But he was he was on something recently that I heard, and he was basically laughing but you could hear almost in you know the laughing was almost a defense mechanism because he seemed to be perplexed by it by all the people who were complaining about him putting Otto in charge and then turning around and complaining now that Peter's coming back (laughs) it's it's like what the hell you want from the guy you know we all knew you know if you if you used your brain for a minute you knew that Peter was coming back eventually Yeah. Otto wasn't going to stay Spider-Man forever, but it, but just the way you said that to me, it's it's almost like we had a different perspective on it. You see it as the redemption of Otto, whereas I see it as Otto pulling Peter's life deep, deep, deep into the mud, so that when Peter gets back, his life is going to be totally screwed up. Wow. Okay. And that would, yeah, I mean, that would, that's 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 the whole, that's the definition of Parker Luck. It 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 definitely. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. I I'm I it Vince and I talked about it in the past. I don't I, I'm not looking for I, I didn't read every issue going, "Oh, I can't wait for Peter to get back." Oh man, when is this when, when is this going to run its course? I I'm reading it as each issue comes out because I'm enjoying it and and I don't want to look too far into the future. I mean, obviously we all know with previews and what not what's happening, but I I could read Otto as Spider-Man for a long time and and uh you know obviously it's it's and it, 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 none of this has really felt like 
he's put the brakes on anything or or editorial was like okay it's time to wrap it up it it feels like it's um the the story has definitely felt organic to me and, yeah, I, and I agree I, and i i just I, i'm gonna be a little bummed when when uh it'll be bittersweet because yay peter's back but i you know it, it was just it's weird because of all of peter's enemies it was it it was the chubby schlub who who basically is is Peter's Lex Luthor. That's the one who beat him. And I never saw that coming. No, I would agree with that. I did, the, the one thing when I talk about him messing up Peter's life that I find to be the most interesting as, as to where it may go is, you know, you, you have all the things like, you know, the murder and getting kicked out of the Avengers and all, all this stuff going on, you know, that's on, on a grand level. But the one thing I'm looking at is on a much more personal level He's now living with a woman that Peter has never actually met. Right. Yeah. So, so what's going to happen when Peter has control of the body again? You know, I just think that's going to be a fascinating thing if he plays it the right way. Yeah. Wow. The one thing I really love about the story is that there's emotional resonance. Like, I think it's what charges people up to get really brutally angry about it. But it's an important part of comics. Um, these are serialized stories, and there's going to be ups and downs, and it's it should feel like a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be times where you're like, like through the whole story, I've been torn. There's been parts where I've started to really like Ox Spidey so much that um, I'm like, I want him to keep sticking around. I want to see more of the redemption that you were mentioning before. But there's been other times where I'm, you know, I'm a Petey fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back to. And I mean, I think that's that should be a ride that the creative team takes you on where you are liking so much what's going on right now because it's different and it's fresh and it's exciting and it's building all the things that Paul was mentioning this when Peter comes back, his status quo is not going to be his anymore. Um, And then that's going to be a very interesting thing for him to deal with, which sets up a very fresh environment. And I'm very excited about that while torn, because I'm enjoying the fellow who's in the suit right now. Twisted way. (laughs) And, and and what I see is a little bit of this, there's been the redemption of Otto, but then there's also a little bit of a reversion to old ways. You know, oh, he, yeah. he, he's fighting on the side of the angels now, but he's going into the methodology that he always used. You know, he's got his minions, he's got his spider bots, he's even got the, uh, you know, the arms, the four arms uh, as part of his costume now. So that's, that's one thing I'm looking forward to, though. I am looking forward to the return of, of the red and blue suit. I think that's why I'm enjoying. I'm also another reason why I'm enjoying the Amazing Spider-Man Two trailer so much is because I get to see the old suit again. Um, I I love the little things that Otto has done, and um, it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, I the Spidey is is that's my dude, and and you know it's 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 weird to be rooting for the bad guy and and he's and like you said paul you know he he reverts back to his way i mean when he calls somebody you know a, a mindless dolt or or it's just like you know first of all this this 30 something year old dude would never say that but you know it's just as rolling off your tongue because that's who you are and it's 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 weird that no matter the the technology the avengers use to make sure that spider-man was spider-man um and and you would think that just 
just common sense or knowing someone's personality would be enough to, to maybe make you realize that something's a little amiss. And, and they kind of dropped the ball there. They, they didn't. They didn't. They, they, they know he's not a scroll and they know that, uh, you know, he hasn't been. Um, it's not somebody else in the suit. They just don't know that the mind has been switched, even though he's talking like somebody else. Well, just just the funniest moment for that for me was when he, which he he quickly gave up on, but when he decided he was going to try to bed Mary Jane, mm-hmm. and and he was taking her out to dinner, and then you know like he's 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 narrating it in his mind. Watson trials test one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know he's trying different things on to see if it, if that'll uh, if that'll get him get her to to go, and then he realized, wait a minute, I have Peter's memories, and he just basically accessed a memory of I guess Peter sleeping with her. Mm-hmm. And and that was good enough for him, and it was like the best night of sleep I ever had. And Pete, <laughs> Peter said, and he's like, "Oh, you're making me sick, man." <laughs> so what do you what have you been reading, Sean, to take it off Spider Man for a minute? Um, well, let me do a Marvel one first. Um, Amazing X Men, um, by Jason. Oh, Aaron. that's good. Um, for me, it, it goes back to the core of what I love about the X Men. I, I love when a writer really gets a character that I felt kind of lost its way a little bit. And I'm talking about Nightcrawler. Yeah. Um, his take on Nightcrawler, the swashbuckler, uh, it brings in, you know, yeah, it brings in Nightcrawler's morality and all that. But there was a while there where Nightcrawler's morality so overwhelmed the character that we lost the fun factor of Nightcrawler. Jason Aaron has so totally brought that element back. Like, I can't wait to see Nightcrawler on screen in any part of that issue. And that's one I want to see him interacting with the teammates and just see those classic moments. He had this great moment with Storm where the two of them have share this kiss. And it, it totally felt like he was this swashbuckler pirate dude. And I just every bit of that was fantastic. Wolverine's reaction when there's even a hint that Nightcrawler might be involved in what they're doing was priceless. And that's where Jason Aaron, I think just a home run is setting up and building to moments. Mm. If you do that in a series and just really take people back to the core of what makes a concept work, there's a lot of X titles out there. And I think Marvel's done a great job at saying it's time to, you know, evolve the creative teams that are doing it. Just freshen things up. They've got wonderful people working on these books right now, but Amazing X Men's been a standout for me. I just, it's been, it, there's a fun factor there that I think separates it. And that's not an insult to the other books, because um, I'm loving all new X Men as well for very different reasons. But Amazing X Men just was one of those surprises that out of the starting gate just has grabbed me, and I just cannot wait for any issue of it to come out because of that. Um, I just want more. Um, on the DC end, Earth 2 has been one that I was really worried about because I loved what James Robinson was doing. They kind of seem to have let him have his own little world. And aside from the fact that two of the characters were on the main Earth, it was really contained where he was allowed to craft his own version of the JSA. I'm a classic JSA fan, so I was really worried, like, am I going to like this? Because he's kind of, you know, we're doing a full reboot of characters that really at their core, for me, it's always been about their longevity and their rich history. Right. Because you put a guy like Robinson on it, he gets how to bring those elements in to the newer characters. Uh, he understands who a Jay Garrick is, who an Alan Scott is. And while he's, 
you know, modernizing and then putting some twists and turns in there that we don't expect. There's a classic feel to it that I really liked. Well, when Robinson left and, and you've got Tom Taylor taking over, I was really worried about that, not because of any insult to Tom Taylor. It was, how do you follow that up? This guy really had the opportunity to be the architect of it. And now you're going to try and take over his book. That's a very hard thing to do. And Taylor, I think, has just done a great job. Um, the particular issue that I, I've loved recently was his annual that he did, where he told the origin of the Earth 2 Batman and took us on a whole bunch of, and I don't, I actually don't want to spoil who he is um, and what his backstory is, other than to say that if you're a fan of um, alternate universe stories, it embraces that. And it touches on a lot of the emotional beats that classic Batman fans would want him to, while at the same time embracing the fact that this is a different universe. So let's take it a different direction. Um, put all the right beats in there, but take it in a different place so I feel like you're reading an Elseworlds, a true Elseworlds. It makes me more excited for eventually when they do do, because it'd be nuts not to, when they do a main Earth and then Earth 2 crossover for char certain characters to meet, including, you know, the regular Batman with the Earth 2 Batman. I want to see what that looks like because I care about the characters. So that's, I'm always, a, I geek out at that kind of stuff. And I don't want to see it overdone, but when it happens, I want it to matter. Hmm. Right. That's, I and mean, then, I, I've, been, I've been all on... Uh... Well, new X Men, but I haven't really been on Uncan Amazing X Men, so I'm going to have to take your uh, your recommendation on that it's one. It's great. It's I think it's Jason Aaron's love letter to Dave Cockrum. Oh, that's, oh yeah, that's worth worth reading just for that. And uh, Earth Two, I picked up the first couple of issues, and I kind of got turned off based on exactly what you were saying. To me, they were the longevity team. The fact that they were the senior squad kind of always, I found that as an appealing thing, the whole legacy aspect of it. And the fact that they were doing away with that kind of gave me a little bit of a closed mind. And maybe I got to revisit that one too. I'm a big Robinson fan. So I, I mean, I'll put that on as an addendum. So I, that was for me, a comfort level of walking into that writer on this and knowing his love for the classic part of the characters. It's not that because it is a reboot of them. So, I mean, we're starting at ground zero for these characters. So you don't have that sense of longevity. So that's a disclaimer to put on it ahead of time. But I feel like at the core, he knows who those characters are. And we start to see them gradually become those people. And that's where my fondness comes. It took issues for it to get to that point. But um, I, I've, I felt like we're heading in that direction with them. The other, I guess the other thing I'm reading a lot of, um, obviously I'm reading all of DC's line, and um, I, I kind of don't want to go there a lot because I do that on my podcast all the time. Um, I'm loving Valiant's output. I don't know if you guys are reading any of that. Uh, I'm a little behind. I, I absolutely loved the beginning of Archer and Armstrong, and I thought the first arc... Um, of uh, Quantum and Woody by, yeah. by Fowler was just amazing. It, it's, um, it's good fun. It is. It absolutely is. Um, Exo Man of War, I've been really digging. I'm actually the writer of Exo Man of War of Venditti, and I, if I'm mispronouncing his last name, I apologize. But um, he's writing Green Lantern right now. But right. before he took over Green Lantern, he was doing this wonderful run on Exo Man of War. And really... He was the quarterback over at Valiant because that was the first series that launched. And it's been just a thrill ride because I was a big fan of Exo Man of War. And modernizing that 
talk about, you know, taking a character that's classic Valiant and bringing that character back and giving us that vibe and making it feel like a wow moment again. Because you got to separate Exo Man of War from Iron Man. Um, because Iron Man has done so well that, you know, if you're going to put some guy in a suit of armor, there's got to be a definite distinction, a reason why it matters. And I feel like Venditti gets that. And it doesn't come off feeling like Iron Man light. It feels like something distinct and different um, because of the fact that this is a guy who's out of time. And it's this suit that is um, this prophecy and it's alive. And in many ways, the suit has a symbiotic relationship with him that I think separates it from what is great about Iron Man and makes it its own thing. Uh, and I, I think that's something that you really need to focus on with, with a character like that. And I think they've done that really well. It's, I think it's just a wonderful line because they've released books very carefully. They're, they're not throwing out the entire line that was there before. They're releasing them in pieces. They just announced that Rai is going to be coming back out again uh, with Matt Kent doing it. And I'm really excited about that. I, just, I think that as a company, they're making really good decisions about how they're releasing their books. They're not um, over flooding the market. They're um, putting together really well-produced books with really solid creative teams that are doing interesting and unique things that also, they're clear that there's a, a fan base that remembers the classic Valiant and what was great about it. It's best stories. And they're really trying to capture that fan base while at the same time keeping it accessible for a new reader. I'm glad that they restarted the universe because you can't just all of a sudden you know, say, okay, now we're back in the old Valiant status quo because it's been so long, but yet it feels like it's that same place for me who was a reader who really loved that material previously. And I, I, I give him a lot of credit for that. Now, that, that original run, I had not been – I heard of it, but I wasn't involved in that at all. Was that early 90s? It was actually uh, – Go ahead. It was your one of the books that uh, you wanted to talk about, Rune. Um, it was right around that time. <laughs> the, okay. um, the Ultraverse was going on right around the same time as Valiant. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Um, no, it was um, it was after yeah af after the Big Seven left Marvel to do Image. Um, shortly after that, I think um, Valiant kicked off. Um, the Ultraverse was kind of like. The anti-image, whereas they were, they were focusing on writers right. uh, like Robinson, like Shaken, um, Engelhart, and um, and you had, yeah, and then and and then after um, Valiant kicked Shooter out, they um, he went to Defiant and then Broadway, but it was, um, yeah, it was all around Valiant was deaf because Valiant. An image had the Deathmate crossover, and mm -hmm. that was yeah. You're you're, you're talking um, early to mid '90s for for Valiant, which is right before, about the time before they I became was, acclaimed. Right about the time I was getting back into comics, so I was. I, I remember, you know, like I said, it was the death of Superman kind of pulled me back in with all the press that was getting, and then uh, I'm just trying to think the uh, the Infinity, not Infinity War, the first Infinity. Uh, also, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, Infinity, uh, Infinity Gauntlet. Infinity Gauntlet was, I think that had just come out, and I remember, you know, I walked into a comic store, and you know, I hadn't been in a store for probably about five or six years, and they had it bagged with all six issues just in one bag, and it was, I think it was, they were asking like ten bucks for all six issues, 
and and I picked that up that day and and uh you know the George Perez art in it and everything and I was just so hooked again so fast but I had so much of the stuff I was already familiar with to get into that a lot of things that I hadn't been you know already like Valiant and a lot of the image books just kind of went by the wayside because I had six, six, seven years of catching up to do on X-Men and Spider-Man and Superman and all of those books. So it was like a whole new world for me. So oh, a lot yeah. of that, that went by, uh, you know, and I, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of good things about, uh, this Valiant run, some of which, uh, David's been on your show, uh, yep. and, and some, some elsewhere, but I, I think I may have to start focusing on that. Maybe, uh, Maybe if Comixology does a sale on some of them, they they do go on sale. Um, it almost seems every um, every few weeks they do a uh, they do a Valiant sale. So they're um, yeah, you just gotta keep an eye out for them. But they uh, they do happen quite frequently. Right, cool deal. That, that early run of Archer and Armstrong too, if especially with Rune. Um, the, the links there with Barry Windsor Smith. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> yeah, that was some beautiful work. I, I re- and and I'm, I like that this Archer and Armstrong um, reminds me of that, but is is it's its own beast, and it's yeah. I I absolutely love this Armstrong. It's not it's not Barry Windsor Smith light. I think if you try to do that and you try too hard to recapture something that came before. This what it captures the core, while at the same time, um, you know, doing its own thing. You're right; the balance is there, and that that's what's really, I think, great about it. Agreed. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And we might as well get right into our first book, which, uh, Sean, you've got the Marvel. Why don't you take a hold of the stage and run with it? Well, I chose um, Uncanny X-Men 160, and and this one has a huge soft spot for me because I was 11 years old. It's 1982. Walked into French's Pharmacy. I had been watching Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and that was really kind of my entry point into the concept of the X-Men. Um you know, growing up, I was a Justice League, Batman, um, Spider-Man fan. You know, Marvel team-up was kind of... I, I didn't have a huge... You know, at 11 years old, you don't have a huge budget. So I liked books like Marvel team-up, Brave and the Bold, as ways to get to know characters. And this book, because I was watching Spider-Man as Amazing Friends and I was getting to know the concept of the X-Men from, like, Iceman and Firestar and their eventual interactions with the X-Mansion... I, on a whim, I picked up this issue. The cover looked fantastic. You know, it's got Belasco's hand shoving down, and um, it's got the team, you know, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Wolverine, and and Sprite, Kitty Pride at the time. I was mesmerized. I mean, this was, it's, it was a very contained single issue uh, where there's this alternate world that they go into this demon world. And I guess I was so used to reading books where, you know, the superheroes... You assumed that everyone was going to 
live and um, there was no danger. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that knocking it. I'm I'm a big fan of the dun dun dun, you know, superheroes um, and that and that straight up concept. But this was at 11 years old. My first concept with. Throughout this book, I was wondering who was going to make it out of this. <laughs> and it was just a, just an interesting experience. These were very gritty characters. You know, you had Wolverine on there uh, who I, I was completely captivated by him at the time. I mean, this was the height of Wolverine. Uh, and I it was reading it back. I noticed the sequence with Wolverine where he's fighting Sim. And afterwards, Sim is this big, he's Belasco's right-hand henchman, and he's, you know, the super powerful, built demon monster type of thing with, with a stogie, just like Wolverine had back in the day. But the thing that caught me with it was there's a point in time in the book where the X-Men had had a battle with Sim, and they survived it. And the key to this issue was I never felt the X-Men won at the end. The X-Men survived at the end. That was something that I felt was very new and fresh to me as well. To see my heroes not have a, a real victory, it was just that they managed to survive, and yet I was rooting for them to do that throughout the entire issue as I was getting to know each one of them. And I remember at one point in time in the battle with Sim, and it's something that I didn't remember until I reread this issue, Wolverine afterwards when they have an opportunity to go back after him he he actually makes mention of the fact that he does he hopes they don't encounter him again and i'm like sitting i'm like this is not the wolverine i know today he would be diving right in there after him it was cool to see like this younger version of wolverine that i grew up with and kind of remember what he was like back here um his reaction to what happened to colossus and is because they were encountering the dead bodies of their compatriots and they didn't know whether they were alive or dead or not. It was just a breathtaking issue for me for that. Uh, there was something captivating about each person, Storm being this beautiful goddess. And Kitty Pride. I remember her being the one. She's kind of like what Robin is to me in Batman and Robin. Kitty Pride was the one I could relate to because she felt like the inexperienced one and i could see myself being wow i could join this team and i could be the guy that they kind of like take under their wing and kind of protect through it and all that because she clearly was the student and these were almost the teachers so it felt like very accessible like this was a team i could somehow be a part of which is unusual in comics, but Robin was always that person for me in Batman and Robin. It was great to see it here. So it's just, it's just a terrific, terrific issue. Very well contained and, and soft spot for me. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I like this one a lot. I thought this was a really good choice. And basically it, it, entail, it details uh, their trip to Limbo and their battle to get out of there uh, in a nutshell. Uh, now, now I, I'm guessing... Of the three of us, David, I'm thinking you might have the best background with this, uh, the whole creation of the character Sim and the uh, satirical uh, thoughts behind that. Uh, see, now this was this was right before my um, my my sweet spot with Uncanny X-Men. I, I I'm a Dave Cockrum fan, but um, I was reading. Spidey and Incredible Hulk and Daredevil, and I wasn't really all that into Uncanny until Paul Smith came on and shortly left thereafter. So I don't know, aside from the occasional reprint 
or flashback or um I haven't even read these issues in in essential so I'm not um I'm not as well versed as I'd like to be in in this particular era of oh, okay. uh, of uncanny okay because because my understanding and I, I some I don't know why but I just thought you'd you'd this would be right up your alley. Is my understanding is that uh, Claremont created the character of Sim uh, as a as a shot to was it Dave Sim who Dave does Sim Cere- Cerebus. Cerebus? Yes, and I would not be I, surprised. Uh, and I and I, and I know that you know that that's the rumor, and I thought there might be more to it. But I, and if I'm sure there is more to it, but I, I'm not sure exactly what what the uh, what the background is and why he, they, they might have a little animosity towards each other. Uh, the artwork in this book is both striking and somewhat inconsistent in my mind. Uh, I really like the layouts. I like the way he goes from long shots to the, just the occasional close-up uh, for effect. Uh, but every once in a while there's a shot that just doesn't seem to have the detail that I would be looking for. Everybody seems very long and lanky. Uh, to me, which I guess is uh, Anderson's style. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. He, I mean, it, it, they're they're like that in um, in Astro City. They were like that in God Loves, Man Kills. Uh, so yeah, he definitely has a. Uh, it, it's it's one of the times where Wolverine will have a swimmer's body instead of the short, stocky dude you're used to seeing. Right, right, exactly. The swimmer's body is is a good way to describe it. And I, I think, Sean, I think you hit it right on the head that they they survived this battle, but they didn't win it. Uh, they they managed to get out. Their, their victory is that they escaped Limbo, and and you saw throughout the story that in other incarnations they did not. Uh, and and I really like that the whole trippy aspect of Limbo, and you know that you could exist there in two separate time periods at the same time. Uh, and, and encounter yourself and encounter yourself from a different uh, different background, different history that you have to change. And uh, I also thought they did the, they did a dual role for, for Kitty. She wasn't only the inexperienced uh, Padawan learner. She was also kind of the protector for Ileana at the same time. So mm-hmm. while she was inexperienced, she was more experienced than Ileana was. Yeah, she was the, and that... The big sister. Right. I mean, she was, she, she had a crush on Ileana's brother and, um, and she definitely was older than Ileana when we were first introduced to Colossus and then, um, through limbo, um, Ileana ages, but, um, but yeah, I, I I agree with Sean. I definitely saw the, uh, and even in, in the current uncanny X-Men, um, they uh, they still have that relationship in the current ongoing Bendis written Uncanny, but yeah, I, I agree with Sean. Kitty is is definitely I see Kitty as Ileana's older sister. Right, and I think the story starts with Ileana being like six, and by the end of the story, she's I guess thirteen or fourteen, like Kitty is. And yeah. I th- I think you know everybody who was in that sweet spot age wise who was reading this stuff, uh, you know. Kitty was the was the point of view character for everybody, and and you know everybody else had these fantastical powers and fantastical experiences where she was, you know, in awe of it all, and she basically gave you your point of view. There was a sense of family too, which uh, for me at that time was new to a team book. Um, I liked that because I loved all my team books previously. I loved. I was a huge Justice League fan. 
And But the difference was Justice League felt like a team, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. For me, when I'm picking this up, I'm like, whoa, this is way different. This is a family. And they have their issues uh, because of the fact that you know the, the team dynamic can be very different at times. But the protective nature to them was more familial than um, even comrades on the battlefield, which was something that I found to be incredibly interesting with how diverse the characters really were. I mean, especially when you got like a Nightcrawler, who himself looks like he belongs more with Belasco and Sim than he does with the team that he's currently with for myself when I was like my first view. But it was one of those things that when I after I was done with this issue, especially with the whole Ileana thing and the Dark Child, I was so captivated with this issue. We had a comic shop nearby, which was a fairly new thing at the time to be able to go there. I started gradually saving up to try and get, and I ended up getting the whole run um, all the way to giant size um, at the time and, and reading everything that led up to this. It was a long process. You know, it wasn't as easy as it was today to do that. Well, you didn't have um, eBay. Yeah, exactly. But it also involved, I didn't have, you know, money or a budget or things like that to work with. So, you know, involved asking for it for birthdays and Christmas and um, also selling issues that I had of other books in order to get issues that I hadn't read of this book to try and fill in the run because I just wanted to read the story. I wanted to see... It was never... I liked to convince myself, as we often do, at least for me, it was always the well, there's a value in this and I'm going to sell it for the purpose of, you know, making tons of money off of it. But it really was always about an excuse to continue reading the story. Mm. (laughs) I wanted to see what came before this. But this issue set it off for me because of the cast of characters and and having old Storm and and new Storm. And um, like I said, the deceased members, as you mentioned, of the team, and and wondering who was going to survive and who wasn't, that sense of danger never left me in the issue when I read it. And that was something that was very foreign. Uh, you know, you always felt like there was a tough battle and you, how were the heroes were going to win. But you, th- my feeling was always, when I read a superhero comic book, eventually the heroes were going to find a way to win. They just didn't in this issue. And I loved that. I just thought it was something so, for me, it was so fresh. Yeah, well, they they gave you examples of when the heroes didn't win. You know, here's here's the carcass of Colossus from another, you know, from another reality, and how he got killed, and his you know, innards are missing. So this could happen to the Colossus from our reality as well. You know, they they give they're coming right out and telling you. And then you know here uh, Sim is pulling out a uh, a claw from a Wolverine from a different reality, and uh, you know that that's been taken from him. So there definitely was that sense of danger and that they could get killed there. It seemed more heroic in some ways because of that. Uh, looking at the cover, I realized that um, that one of the earliest X-Men issues that I remember buying off the rack was actually 161, which felt like it was, it was a flashback issue. It felt like it was a filler issue. Um, and it had to do with... Uh, with Xavier and Magneto and um, Baron Von Strucker. And when Sean mentioned 160, I don't know why I thought that, but that was actually 161. But as far as 160, I don't have, I don't have anything to add to uh, to any points for that. I was looking, I've got my original issue um, still, and I actually reread it for this purpose because I hadn't read it in years. 
And mm-hmm. I wanted to read it for this with the lens of like, how do I feel about it now? And it was amazing how captivating and how well the story held up for me. You know, I was wondering, you know, is it going to feel dated? Is it going to feel real different? Um, I think just because of the tone and that's, again, that sense of danger and <laughs> that they didn't, sur- that they really just survived. They didn't actually win. That really struck me. But also the price point, I was like, look at the cover. I'm like, 60 cents. I paid 60 cents. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know what you you want to make me, me seem old right now, or I'm going to make me seem old is uh, I remember I bought this new off the stands, and at the time I thought, wow, sixty cents is an awful lot of money to spend on a comic, because I started buying them. They they just went from twenty to twenty five, and uh, I I was I actually started buying the X Men when they were in the reprint stage before the new X Men had been introduced, so I had bought Giant Size Number One off the stands, which I still own. Wow, and uh, I I remember. For whatever reason, you know how the how the uh, the candy stores at the time didn't always have a solid run of the books. You know, they one yeah. month they'd have it, one month they wouldn't. And for some reason, my store never had issue ninety four. And then ninety five came out, which I guess was four months after Giant Size number one. And then I we we did have a local comic store, which. Uh, was very different from what local comic stores are now, but I found it in the twenty five cent rack where they used to actually take a grease pen and write 25 cents over the comics authority uh box okay and uh and then that's but that's how i ended up getting my copy of number 94 so i still have that with the 25 cents written in the box but i I bought this when it was new and i agree with you sean i think it's aged very well i think the story is held up i think I, i i i actually think a lot of the run from back then is still very solid i think it reads well today I would agree with that. I think up until um, uh, it was a real sweet spot for a few years where Claremont was was just on fire. I think I think maybe after Secret Wars, when Magneto joined the team, things started to obviously it felt different. But I think um, that's where it was kind of missing what I enjoyed with um, with the Paul Smith stuff, and then going back and reading the older John Byrne issues. Um, it, it and then things started to really go crazy with um, with Australia and then uh, and then a few years after that with the with the blue and gold and and it, mm-hmm. it was but yeah no it was um I I think when whether it was because it was just a younger voice he had or um, it was still relatively new and we didn't have plot threads that were never resolved that went on for years it, it really was a sweet spot yeah I, I had the uh the pleasure of of having a chance to sit and talk to chris claremont at the last new york comic con and uh kind of go through a little bit of these years with him and uh he does have a certain amount of bitterness that comes through for uh the fact yeah. that they're making all this money on these movies and you know at the time the wolverine had just come out which you know is is, is at least uh in part based on the uh, Frank Miller, Chris Claremont miniseries. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, you could see, you know, he's got at least disappointment with how he's been treated with that stuff. But he also still does have a warm spot when you start talking about these issues and you could see he lights up a little bit. And uh, it's, it's nice to see that enthusiasm come out of, out of a writer. Yeah. I think it was sweet that he was also sitting next to uh, Bob McLeod that weekend. 
Well, see, I didn't notice that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that that was that's my my bad. What one thing I want do want to mention about this book? Sequart recently released a documentary about Chris Claremont, and he it was interesting to hear him talk about how the popularity of this led to him being asked to do more projects. They wanted to expand the line, you know, things like the Wolverine uh, miniseries, things like New Mutants, and he wanted to keep. A control over the story that was being told. He didn't yeah. want it to expand, but what happened was he started spreading himself very thin uh, because of that. And even like X Factor, him not taking control of X Factor <laughs> was a very tough thing for him because now when they were bringing back Gene Gray, and he was talking about how this was like you know in his mind a prom a breaking of a promise to the fans that he'd made with that whole storyline, that she was not going to come back, that that was going to be. It, it's it's a really interesting documentary if you're interested in what it was like for Chris Claremont during this time. Um, Anna Senti, if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, was in it. Chris Claremont was in it. Um, Louise Simonson was in it. Jim Shooter. And really talking about uh, what that era was like, what relationships were. And it was an honest look at like what the relationship was like between writer and editorial and um, just what that era was like. And it's interesting to compare it to um, what things are like today and how it evolved closer to what things are like today. Uh, it was a very interesting look and it was very honest and very frank and uh, it was very refreshing just to kind of have a lens into that era. So if, if you haven't checked out a Sequart documentary, it's one, if you're interested in this era at all, I highly recommend it. It was really, really a good watch. That sounds good. It, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I, like I hadn't really thought about the Jean Grey resurrection as violating some sort of a, uh, a, a trust with the fans. And it's interesting to think of it that way, especially when you think about it from the perspective that, Claremont and Byrne had written the story where she didn't die and editorially they were forced to kill her off and then for them to turn around and bring them back without letting him have control of her it must have felt like a uh, you know a little bit of a stabbing the in the back to him yeah yeah, yeah that, that's not the first time I've I've heard that um, that there were Claremont was very protective of 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 the X Men, whether they were still on the team or not, and and he, um, one of the stories I heard was that uh, he expected to be kept in the loop, and uh, and when they decided to bring back, I don't even know if I should say they, but when Byrne brought Jean Grey back, and um, and it wasn't going to be in the X Men book, um, and that it was going to be in a different book and that she was going to be brought back in a non-X-Men book and that she wasn't going to be part of the X-Men. Um, yeah, I think for a long time, because of, of the time he put in to these characters, that uh, that Claremont definitely felt some form of ownership. And, and if, you know, if you're going... Even if it's it's all freelance or at the time and, and, and you don't own these characters, but I, I, I definitely get just because of the way I was brought up. I definitely get where, where Claremont could be coming from where it's like, listen, I may not be able to do anything with the character, but I think it'd be nice if you gave me a heads up saying, Hey, I'm going to use this character that you spend so much time with 
over the years. Just as a just as a friendly little heads up. But I mean, you don't have to. It would just be considerate, and and I I can see why that could rub Claremont the wrong way sometimes. The documentary too was very conversational. So nothing like when he's telling stories and shooters telling stories, because obviously there's parts of it where they're talking about certain elements of their relationship where times were adversarial. Uh, None of it was coming off as whiny. It was very much just a telling of stories of what happened at the time. So it's a really cool documentary if you want to like sit back and watch and get kind of a lens into different perspectives on it, but not feel like, like I didn't walk out afterwards watching this documentary feeling like depressed or sad or angry or anything. I felt like I had been given a view of history. It was a very well produced documentary piece uh, in, in that sense. So, because a lot of times you hear about these type of stories being told where there's it's coming from a bitter perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a historical perspective from all the people who were presented. And I thought they all carried themselves very well in the way that they presented themselves. For anybody that's interested in comic history, uh, it's just, uh, this is the way a documentary should be done about an era. It sounds sounds great. I'm going to have to check that out. Did, what you're talking about, the ownership of the characters, you hear that a lot with uh, Jim Starlin and the Marvel Cosmic. Oh, yeah. That yeah. He, he's got a lot of bitterness for the way he was treated with some of that. And, uh, you know, the, the only thing I could say, though, is Abnett and Landing did some outstanding work with those characters. Absolutely. So it's it's almost hard to to point a, a negative finger towards the non Jim Stalin things, as much as I love the work that he did with them over the years. Yeah, and I, I think there's a uh, there's a bigger connection if you were reading them as those issues were coming out, and and you just that was that was your golden age, so to speak. But anybody who is only reading the Stalin stories in collections and they read the Abnett and Lanning stuff as it was coming out, then that's, that's going to be the ones that, that sink to them. So yeah, it's, it. I mean, at least it's nice that I guess we've been around long enough where we can kind of at least give a different perspective and, and, you know, not, uh, you still have a lot of people who, you know, civil war was my, was my gateway or, or, Infinity Crisis and and or Infinite Crisis and and you have there are a group that you know are younger than us and and that weren't reading didn't start reading at the same age we started reading they they they, they didn't start reading until their their twenties and it's um it, it's nice to get a different perspective just so that you know it, it may make you feel like like, like a stodgy old coot but at least there's a um, there's a different perspective and, and uh, it it's nice knowing that if you think you're a little stuffy or if someone else thinks you're a little stuffy and it, it's just, I, I get, I, I'm all for why Starlin, my Jim Starlin or Chris Claremont would feel the way they did at the time um, or in Starlin's case, maybe he still does, but um but yeah, you can't. These are characters that if, if Starlin owned these characters, then we wouldn't have gotten Abnett and Lanning's Guardians of the Galaxy, and and other people wouldn't be attracted to these characters or have them as their favorite characters. So it's it's give and take, I guess. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think sometimes you have to you have to add your own or change your perspective. You know, as as a guy who is you know I'm 51 years old now. I have to understand that, say, for instance, the new 52 
was not written to attract me to comic books. Right. And I have to understand that it's not going to be the Superman that I grew up with or the Batman that I grew up with or virtually any of the characters that I grew up with. And in order to appreciate it, I have to be able to sit and read it as its own entity and try and appreciate what that story is being to- how that story is being told or how that artwork is being rendered whether they change the uniform or anything like that and not just sit there and pine over what they were doing 40 years ago because that ruins it if you do it that way right and it's sometimes it's not an easy perspective to have because sometimes it's real easy to say hey that's not my superman i don't like this but yeah. you got to pull yourself back once in a while yeah well and and those Superman stories you read didn't disappear. Still got yeah, them in exactly. your long boxes. Very true. You know, um, I was thinking as we were having this discussion about owning eras and uh, identifiable eras. I think it's great that creators have passions for that. It's funny how the book choices that David and I made for this one in particular, we were taking two different character strands, like the X Men and Superman, and. They're creators who really owned a certain era of those characters because the Man of Steel era of John Byrne that you you chose, really this miniseries that you chose, kicked off an era where Byrne really owned Superman at this time. Um, but it was, so, it was a short period, though. He was barely yeah. on the series for two years. But look how many books he was touching. Oh, many. absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it went on. it went on until... Until what, like two thousand something, when when we had um, uh, Birthright, and then when when a few years later, when Jeff Johns did um, Secret Origin. But yeah, it was John Byrne pretty much laid it all out, and and between him and Marv Wolfman on Adventures of they, and then eventually when you had it weekly with Louis Simonson and Dan Jurgens, you had um, you had the definitive Superman for a lot of people. Yeah, it's 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 not the Bronze Age Superman that I grew up with. But and and again, this is at the period where I kind of was drifting away from comics when Byrne was taking over Superman. But I never found it bothersome that they restarted that for some reason. I didn't have to adjust my perspective the way I'm talking about having to have done it with the new 52 for some reason. And I don't know if it's just because I was in my 20s and I was more open-minded to it, or if it was done in a better manner. I'm not sure. It certainly was a less abrupt manner. The, the entire DC line, even with as huge of a story as Infinite Crisis was, or excuse me, Crisis on Infinite Earths was, uh, you still felt like you had the same characters when it was done to a large extent. Yeah, 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 yeah to, to, to quite a degree you did, yeah. But the, the, you know, the new 52, you know, it's certainly a new spin on characters for the most part. I mean, I think Batman is, is basically the same. Batman character. and I think Green Lantern are pretty much the same. Everybody else has been, from when I, because there, there aren't a lot of the new 52 books that, I, that I'm still reading. But yeah, that was, those were the two that, Pretty much stayed the same, and and Sean could tell us otherwise. But it, everybody Aquaman. else was Aquaman stayed the same too. Did he really? Oh, I didn't think so. He was the Aquaman that Jeff Johns was writing before the New Fifty Two. But I, I thought he 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 just had so much more of a. I, I don't I, I don't want to, I didn't think it was meta, but there was almost a wink to the audience, uh, saying this this is the new cool Aquaman. 
Uh, but it was the, well, it looked great. I mean, with with, yeah. with Rice's artwork, it was just stunning. But and but then uh, who took over after Rice? Because it was also was it was the Aquaman that Johns was writing though in Brightest Day. Okay. Yeah, I guess it was. I, I guess I, I don't know. You know, I'm 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 tempted to compare it to the uh, is it Peter David's Aquaman? Peter David stuff with the Kevin Maguire covers. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's more of what what I'm comparing it to, and that's obviously very different. Oh yeah. And then we did a, an issue on here uh, of like a 1960s Aquaman book, and you know that that's like right out of the Super Friends as far as the depth yeah. of the storytelling. <laughs> See, I think the current Aquaman is like a hybrid of the classic Aquaman and Peter David's. It's um, I don't know that I would compare it to either. I mean, Johns is obviously a fan of the the classic Aquaman, but he also didn't want to ignore the work that Peter David did. Um, so it it kind of is an interesting, which we're, we're going on a crazy segue with Aquaman, but I, I think that he has pulled in all those elements like Johns does into his run. That's my take. I mean, you don't have to agree with that. That's my take on it. What, what I've read of that run has been outstanding, that much I would say. I haven't read the whole thing. I've kind of fell behind... Uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago I kind of fell off it and I have, it's another one where I have a stack of books to read. I think we've all, is there anybody who is a comic fan that doesn't have a stack of books to read? <laughs> I think that's, I think it's like part of like, uh, I mean, David, I'm assuming you have a huge stack of things you would love uh, to Way, read. way too much to read. <laughs> but, but let's be fair about it. We were constantly fighting to keep up with it and, you know, with, with the goal being to get it all read. If you ever got it all read, if you ever reached that goal, you'd be terribly depressed that you didn't have a stack of books to read. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. oh yeah. yeah. So, so you know, it's it's the goal, but it's a goal you never hope to attain. I honestly hope we never have a day where the previews catalog is so simplistic that we're able to keep up with it. I mean, I think that's one of the strengths right now is there's too much great material. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, there's there's creators out there that from the mainstream to, you know, your smallest independent um, that are just doing amazing things with the medium. I, I, I like the fact that there's too much stuff for me to absorb. <laughs> that's I think that's the choices are awesome. And even with the stack of stuff to read that th- those fifth weeks where, you know, you only get a couple of books that come out, they're kind of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think. I think probably your best best tact on that is if you treat those as a week to pick up a series that you normally wouldn't go for and get something, you know, introduce yourself to some, you know, maybe, you know, preferably an independent company book uh, that, like I said, you wouldn't normally get, go for. And you say to yourself, OK, I, you know, I'm only picking up three books this week, so let me let me grab this one, too, and give it a shot. It's probably a prime opportunity to find something, you know, some hidden gem somewhere. All right, and having brought the room to a crashing halt, uh, <laughs> probably a good time to switch over to our DC book. It was not bringing the room to a crashing halt. It was just time to talk Superman. <laughs> it's always time to talk Superman. Oh, well, it depends on the Superman, but yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I've been wanting to... I, eventually, I finally double-dipped on this over a year ago, I remember buying this um, bi-weekly as the uh, as the issues were coming out, and uh, haven't read it in. I may have read it a couple years after 
it came out, but um, haven't really looked at it in in probably decades. And and that is uh, John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries that that he wrote and penciled and and Dick Giordano inked. And um, it is post Crisis on Infinite Earth Superman, and it is uh, it's basically the um, the degodifying superman he uh he wasn't able to move planets anymore and and uh and spin the earth backwards to to go back in time this was a um this was a more if you want to call it relatable superman um and it it worked i was when i was growing up reading comic books buying them off the rack for 50 60 65 cents 75 cents i for me, John Byrne was Marvel Comics. George Perez was DC Comics. George Perez penciled the new Teen Titans, which I absolutely adored. Um, almost went with a Teen Titans book for tonight. Um, loved Crisis on Infinite Earth. That is my event. That is pretty much the event that I measure everything else to. Um, and uh, And I just, it was so weird to know when I, when I read that issue of amazing heroes, when I saw Superman drawn on the cover by burn that he was not just leaving the fantastic four, but leaving Marvel to go work, not just for DC, but for their flagship character. Um, I was going to be there. And I, I read the Carrie Bates Superman. I read world's finest. Uh, I, I love those old dollar issues. And, and I knew the old Superman, the, the 80 different versions of kryptonite. And, and I, I was I was a Superman fan. I loved the first two Superman movies. I uh, I was all about seeing John Byrne's version of Superman, especially since I knew he wasn't going to be doing that old version. He was he was going to tweak it and and make it his own. And um, there were so many things about this Superman that I just fell in love with. The larger shield, the larger S on his chest. It was perfect. It made sense. There's, we had the old Wayne Boring and, and, and Kurt Swan versions where the S was just basically over his pectorals, and, and, and that was about it. But this was this was the first major change that I remember seeing. Um, and it just it told me that things were going to be a little different. And then as you read the issues, as you read this miniseries of, of this new Superman... Um, it just it made sense, and and the fourth issue in particular is where um, I thought things were just. It was of the six issues, it was the one that um, that I think I enjoyed the most because there were um, we got a little bit more into Clark's thought process. Um, you know, he in order to keep his physique. Uh, he has a weight set lying around the apartment. But when you have Lois over there kind of doing reps with with Clark's dumbbells, how is it that he can keep in that shape with equipment that, that Lois can kind of knock around? And, and you know, and, and obviously Clark never really thought that he'd have to explain that much. And, and, and knowing now how strong he is, whether or not somebody would be able to pick up that, that same weight set and, and do things with it. Um, 
he's got to keep on his toes and and the way you know he shaves you know with a piece of 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 the the rocket that brought him to earth and and reflecting his heat vision off it um the introdu- the introduction of Lex Luthor in this um in this new uh status quo where um he's not the mad scientist he's not um he's not wearing the uh he's not wearing the the purple and, and green power suit and and uh or the or the high collar purple tunic he's 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 a businessman he's like he's he's like gordon gecko and and um and it, it, it was fitting because this was the mid 80s it was the mid to late 80s like 1986 so so everything about this just made sense the, the only part that i think really this this one panel uh it kind of told me that um Burn was much older than I was in the eighties. Um, when Lois is leaving Lex's presence, um, she burns him by saying that uh, maybe he should get a haircut because he's starting to look like Fred Mertz. And I, I, I wasn't a huge I Love Lucy fan, and and so I wasn't. Aside from Lucy and Desi and Ricky. I knew Fred and Ethel, but I didn't know Fred's last name. And and for me to to to, to finally figure out that she was referring to Lex as as a, she was insulting him by 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 saying he looks just like a character from a 1950s television show um, that wasn't even in color. I just that out of everything that's going on in the issue that that scream dated to me. And 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 for a second. Burn kind of lost me for just a second there, and then he 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 grabbed me back up with the whole terrorist angle uh, coming onto the boat. But um, the series as a whole was fantastic. But the fourth issue with um, with Lex just trying to own Superman, and uh, and this was the issue that really um, caused the. Uh, this is what made Lex want to make sure Superman uh, knew who was more powerful, knew um, knew who was in charge, and uh, it was it, it it took a couple of issues, but we 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 were introduced to his 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 main nemesis and um, and the person who just wanted revenge on um, on Metropolis's new. The favorite son and and it was um it ended on a pretty heavy note just because of, of how it started off with lois showing up at clark's apartment and him going out on a um not necessarily a date but 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 it was a it was work related and and then ending with uh with luther basically um letting him know that uh this will not stand and it uh it was one of the of the six was probably for me the the, the strongest of of the issues out, out of the miniseries. It was just uh, it hit some of those notes that uh, that 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 I I enjoyed so much from the Fantastic Four. I um, I definitely recommend the Man of Steel the series as as a whole. Um, there are some things about it because we talked about the the entire series on 11 o'clock comics recently and, and Jason read it for the first time. And Jason 
was is a huge Marvel zombie, so he didn't read this as it was coming out. He wasn't really a DC fan in the 80s, so um, for him to finally read it uh, almost 30 years later, um, there were some things that still worked uh in this day and age and there are some things where you know yeah it was a um it was definitely of its era but uh i I thought the fourth issue was just uh it's what kind of made the series for me you know what was interesting about the fourth issue too um because i reread it for this purpose um how character defining it was for Lois, because I, what I found about this issue in particular, you're, you're talking about the great relationship with Lex, everything we know about Clark. It also showed me how Lois would be attractive to Superman, Mm. Um, not just physically attractive, but there's a strength to her in this. There is there's a definite sense of who she is. She doesn't come off as the like an overdone damsel. And I'm a big Superman fan, so don't get me wrong when I say that. I'm not, like, I love the character of Lois. But I think sometimes she, in her history, has been written almost too damsel. (laughs) And this one, I really could see him admiring. Like, when you have to sit there and start saying to yourself, oh, wait a minute, I need to change the weights because she's going to catch on. There's something you've got to admire about the fact that this is a girl who pays attention to her surroundings, starts asking yeah. questions. She catches things. There's an intelligence to her. Like, as you're getting to know her in this issue through Clark's eyes, you're getting to see why he would be perking up around her and listening to what she has to say and respecting what was there. And I think that's a something that Byrne, I thought, crafted very well, because I wasn't reading Superman when this came out. Um, I was a Batman guy. I had read him a lot in World's Finest and DC Comics Presents. But I was reading a lot of Marvel because I had gotten into the X-Men, and I was still reading some DC. You know, with my, I was a Batman junkie, so I was always with him and Justice League. But I had stepped away from uh, Superman. And when I saw Byrne was coming over to this, it was... I remember the dual covers. There was a newsstand version and a direct market cover. I had both. Um, I because I when I grabbed the first version of this and I read it, I was instantly mesmerized by his take on Superman and his supporting cast, which was something that I thought Byrne did very well in this. And I agree with you on your your choice of this issue was stellar, because of the fact that you know Lex Luthor being fleshed out so well here and Lois and Clark. I think it's an important key to understanding how to write really good Superman is not forgetting the people that surround him. Right. I think that's most series that the supporting cast is critical to writing a long, you know, long form story such as this. You know, you can't just focus on Superman. I think that was uh, the mistake that uh, JMS made a little bit in that short grounded run that he did. He really didn't concentrate on the supporting cast much at all. I had to skip that. Um, the uh, and and now that Sean mentioned the supporting cast, I realized that this issue did not have Mon Pa Kent, and that's something else that Burned it is he kept Jonathan and Martha Kent alive while Clark was growing up, and even after he moved out and and went to Metropolis. Mm. I, I think uh, you know to to touch on what Sean was talking about a little bit is uh, when poorly written 
you don't really know why why Superman's attracted to Lois, and the poor the poor writer when asked why would just say because he is, Where, <laughs> whereas Byrne actually shows you why he is. Yeah, and I I, yeah. I do think that's that's a a real strong point that that they fail in very often, uh, especially I think in cinematic Superman. I think a lot of times you never quite understand why he's got this fixation with her. Yeah, I didn't get that impression in Man of Steel at all. Yeah, you're right. In in Man of Steel, you know, uh, the only reason you know she's smart and and everything is because she tells you. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, winning author. <laughs> you know, it's don't don't tell us, show us why she is. Right. And, and yeah, yeah, she did figure out that he was Clark. But and and take this for what it's worth because I do get some uh, criticism on uh, in 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 our group because I actually like Man of Steel very much, uh, whereas it's gotten a great deal of criticism. Uh, but the clues were too obvious. I can't see why anybody doesn't know that it's Clark in that movie. <laughs> yeah, there was no slouching. He didn't do uh, in the first issue of of the Man of Steel miniseries. They. Um... When, when Jonathan gives him his old pair of of glasses, you know, he slicks his hair back and slouches a little. Um, Christopher Reeve kind of did the same thing. His Clark looked different than Superman, and um, and when you see Cal in the Man of Steel movie, he basically just kind of looks like Superman in casual wear. You don't get the impression that uh, that he's trying to. And granted, the first half of the movie, he's not in a suit. He's not in his outfit. So why would he try to look different? But, um, you know, him showing up at the Daily Planet at the end of the movie, that wasn't enough for me to think that uh, that he can pull it off. And I, I think Byrne even draws him subtly different when he's Clark and when he's Superman enough that yeah. you can see where somebody might not make the connection. Although I mean, it is stretching. <laughs> it is stretching your thought process to think that somebody puts on a pair of glasses and now you don't know who they are anymore. He, yeah, <laughs> the, the, there's a little bit of a difference in in the cheeks and the chin. But oh, and that was the other thing in this same issue, in the fourth issue, uh, somebody takes Superman's photo, and um, and Burn makes sure we know that Superman tries to blur his face, tries to move at a speed where taking a picture of him won't um won't really um give you good results when you bring that out of the dark room and because um, otherwise yeah it's superman you can just take a picture of him and and try to you know face recognition him with someone else but uh that was just another little one thought balloon mention that uh, that burn just kind of made it work it's a better explanation than super hypnosis right Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how even the super hypnosis, though. I like at the time I was so mesmerized by those movies that uh, it. I, I still I can chuckle at it today for exactly the same reason that we're doing it right now at the moment. But I still I give that movie a pass. <laughs> well, no, I'm not talking about when he did it in the movie with the super hypnosis kiss. I'm talking about an issue. I think it Just was the, Action Comics in the late '70s when they they said basically he is uh, he, he's using some form of hypnosis that he doesn't even realize he's using, and that people see him subtly different as Clark Kent than he actually appears. They see his hairline looks to be receding a little bit more. He looks a little bit less 
physically fit and that somehow he's doing an unconscious hypnosis of everybody around him. I prefer when it's grounded in the real world. Yeah. You know, where like little, little subtle things like you're saying, like burn, you know, doing that. Um, I think here's the thing. I say that now, I think that each era people, what people will accept and what they look for in comics changes. So you need to evolve to match kind of those sensibilities. Like I can look back at classic, I've showcased volumes and stuff like that, being able to read, you know, collections of the comics. I, I'm a fan of that material, even though there's parts of it where you could easily start grunting and groaning because there's things that are so fantastical (laughs) that, you know, you're expected to believe, but I like that it's, it's meant, it was meant to be that at the time, suspend your own disbelief. The advantage of what Byrne did here is he brought it into an era where he was really speaking to the intelligence of the fans and saying, these are things that fans question all the time. They've questioned it since the George Reeves TV series. They've questioned it since the films. These are things like, how can Lois not know? How can this person not know? How come people don't catch that it's him? He started trying to address those things mm-hmm. in a way where he's like, you know, I, I want to address it in as real a sense as you possibly can. So when fans start talking about this, they get excited about the fact that that's been there. I mean, the fact that it's brought up here in this conversation, how many years later tells you how much what burned accomplished there resonates because we're still picking that out as being something that was cutting edge. Yeah. And I've heard from, you know, more than one person say that this, uh, this series was looked at as being the marvelization of Superman, uh, by John Byrne taking it. Yeah. And and I can't say it's a hundred percent wrong because it did have, like you said, brought him more into the real world, real world problems, making him more relatable, uh, and that that was the the Marvel uh, paradigm. So I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I'm thinking at the time, seeing uh, John Byrne render Superman must have been very very similar to what happened a couple of weeks ago when they announced that. Uh, John Romita Jr. is going to start drawing Superman. That's and and um, yeah, that was one of the things that I I, um, I think I mentioned that online that uh, I, I I do I I wonder if um, a longtime hardcore Marvel fan sees John Romita Jr. and and Klaus Janssen going to DC and working on Superman the, the, the same way that I looked at at Burn going and. Uh, and not in you know it, it, it's not meant as as a slight or in 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 a negative way. I I think that um you know you're you're so used to seeing Ramita drawing everybody in the Marvel universe and and yeah he's drawn Batman before in in a crossover but you know you don't um that's one guy you never really associated with DC and especially to see him draw Superman so um it's it it it's the start of a new era. I think it's pretty neat. I'm hoping it's going to be the take my time and really bring my A game to it, John Romita Jr., as opposed to the I got to pump out a couple of books a month and I'm going to kind of rush it and let let Klaus ink it as well as he can, John Romita Jr. I agree. Because there, there's a couple of times where I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to call it lazy, but rushed. He calls it a deadline style. Yeah. And and, and, and you can you can clearly see the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
my my problem with with JRJR is my favorite work of his was when he was working with uh, Bob Layton on Iron Man, which mm. is you know the very early days. But looking back on it, I think that was more Bob Layton than it was John Rita Jr. Yeah, yeah, I would I I, I think so. My um my Romita Jr. Golden Age is uh, early two hundreds Amazing Spider Man two twenties two thirties where um he was inked partly by by Jim Mooney, um, and uh, it was um, I was getting Spidey as 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 a um, as a subscription, so it was coming with the brown plain envelope and um, but that is that's my Spider Man. I still see that version when uh, when I think of Spidey and 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 going right up until. Um, you know, the introduction of the Hobgoblin and things like that, and and nothing can stop the Juggernaut and, and Will-O-The-Wisp, and you have some of these funky stories, and then um, and then he left to go do X-Men. He left right when uh, right with Secret Wars, because when Spidey came back, it was uh, Ron Friends and mm-hmm. uh, Joe Rubenstein, so, which still looked great. It was the black costume, and Friends made his Spider-Man his own, but... Um, yeah, from from uh, early two hundreds to about two fifty. That that's my John Romita favorite time, and I was not a fan of his Uncanny X Men stuff. I do like Klaus Janssen as an anchor more than Mooney, though. Uh, we do, a couple of weeks ago we did the issue with uh, Sandman and uh, Hydro Man. Hydro Man, yeah, I, I, that was one of the issues I got in the mail. Mm-hmm. And and some of some of the artwork in that to me was less than stellar. Uh, I, I think uh, to some extent I'll give you some credit on this. Is you, you listening to you uh, has given me a little bit more of a greater appreciation uh, for breaking down the artwork. Uh, you, you've you've pointed out a few things about where sometimes you have to look to who you're going to credit. Are you going to credit the penciler? Or are you going to credit the inker? I know that's a big big point that you've made a lot of times, and it's actually Aww. gotten me thinking a few times. And I find myself looking at it more closely, looking at the layouts, looking at the fine detail work, looking at the thickness of the lines. And uh, I guess it, it shows you can uh, teach an old dog new tricks. Well, thank you. Well, it's, it's, it's tr- happens to be the truth. It's funny you were mentioning uh, Romita Jr.'s X-Men run. I was a fan of his Spider-Man run prior to that, too. And when he took over X-Men, I was really excited when I, you know, first issue and I saw that it was him. I, with you, I couldn't wrap my head around his X-Men run. I enjoy, yeah. I, I was an X-Men fan. I was enjoying the stories. But I remember that being an era where I thought the artwork was good, but I wasn't getting the same experience that I got with him in Spider-Man. Yeah. And uh, I, I found myself, like, it's it's not an era I look back upon, and and I usually, if when it comes to talking about his artwork, big fan. Um, it's just not an era that is very memorable to me as being something that resonated, um, which is very unusual when it comes to his artwork. It was, uh, I mean, the the crazy hair with some of the um, some of the women, or, or the two dots for the nose. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just you know too many characters or. Um, it just it it wasn't the clean Romita Jr. that I remembered, and and what probably also didn't help, what what kind of maybe got it off on the wrong foot, was that um, issue one seventy five, uh, the first ten or so pages 
were by Paul Smith, and and it was a double sized issue, and most of it was by introducing new Uncanny X Men artist John Romita Jr. and and I was like I felt gypped because I didn't get all the Paul Smith I wanted, and it wasn't the Romita Jr. that that, that I was reading and loving in uh, in Amazing Spider Man. You know what's interesting though? You're making a great point there. I wonder how I would have felt if it hadn't have been partial Paul Smith, because that did set a tone for me. <laughs> that was jarring, yeah. That, I mean, it really was. And I'm, I usually don't have that issue when, you know, you'll introduce an artist in the series. I usually get excited. And um, even though I loved the artist previously, that one, for whatever reason, just, and I did not let it go. Uh, and I wonder if he had been given the next issue instead you know, where Paul Smith finished off that one to be given the next issue instead. If I had felt differently starting off reading a complete issue with it, I don't, I don't think I would have like been drat, like saying, wow, it's the greatest, you know, artistic run I've ever seen. Cause I think he's just an incredible artist overall. It's just not a run that I feel stands out in his catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder if that, I wonder if I would have had it cause I was getting that one brown bagged. Um, I, it was at the time it was one of two books that I was getting and I was getting it via subscription. And I remember when that came, I was like, what? <laughs> what <have you> done? <laughs> it's not good when you have a subscription and you start thinking about, Oh, can I switch this to a different book? Yeah. The, the story, the story was good enough that I was sticking around for the story. I just, I remember at the time wishing that the artwork was matching the material. It was just an era. I remember being one where I was reading the X-Men. I was enjoying it, but I wasn't loving everything about it the way that I was before, um, which is very unusual. Um, in that in that particular case, and I, I would love to know how he feels about that era, right. you know, because um, he's such a talent. So it's I, I don't want to diminish anything from how I feel about him overall as a talent. He's amazing. I'm excited for him on Superman, but because um, I think we're going to see something special. I think he's going to come and make a statement because this has got to be a dream, you know, to be able to make a mark on that character. And I think he's going to do it. <laughs> I really do. I definitely think he's going to try. I, I, th- I think we all going to see the A effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just, just this, this whole show is, is tangents off tangents off tangents. And that's, that's the name of the game. That's what we always do. But I, I'm just, uh, just cause my mind is, is wandering a little bit and thinking about, uh, J.R. Jr. with Klaus Jansen. And my favorite Klaus Jansen work is when he was inking Sal Buscema on, uh, the defenders. Mm. I just thought he took wow. he he made me appreciate Sal Buscema in a way that nobody else ever has. Because I looked at that and I thought it was gorgeous work. Whereas a lot of times when he's inked by somebody less talented, it seems more pedestrian to me. So I don't know. I I, I don't know if there's any point to be made there, but it's just something that came to mind. I read nice a lot of that stuff from uh, a flea market. Um, which is the craziest thing in the world. I just I didn't have a budget for Defenders, and um, we used to go in, in when I was a kid on Sundays to uh, flea markets. It's straight on through when, when I was a teenager. You used to get the best stuff in boxes from flea markets. 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't stuff that you were going to go sell anywhere. Or you had no illusion that any of it was going to be worth anything because you know, you'd have stuff that had like ripped covers. And st- the good news was, though, usually the pages inside were great, you know, as far as for checking out the artwork and reading, you know, yellowed and all. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I remember reading a lot of that Defenders era from that, you know, and it wasn't always every single issue you know it was you know very broken runs right but, um, oh beautiful artwork <laughs> yeah just uh, i mean I, I i do think with the right style uh jansen has a way of uh bringing out the best in some people yeah and and, and you could tell i i that same comic-con way where you and i met david uh that was, in fact, one of the things that I remember I was talking to Chris about extensively is J.R. Sr. was there. And he was at a table with J.R. Jr. and Klaus Janssen. So that, to me, says uh, the kind of working relationship that they have, that they even, you know, hung out together at the convention all day. <laughs> and uh, Oh, and just uh, as another thought, I like this Lex Luthor. The uh, the businessman Lex Luthor, but I also really enjoy the power suit Lex Luthor. <laughs> and the power suit makes an appearance in the next issue. And uh, for for you know, I, and I you know, I mean, I'm older than you, but I'm not so much older than you that it you know that we can't uh, have a, a common frame of reference. But growing up, I remember I Love Lucy being on in syndication all the time. Oh, so I had no issues knowing Fred Mertz and who he was and his his last name and all. I wasn't watching it because when I got home from school, it was it was other things that were on. But um, but yeah, I mean, Channel Five, um, NYW or Fox now. But that I mean, yeah, it was it was constantly on. I just wasn't a um, I wasn't a regular watcher, and and I I, I didn't really know. I mean, in, in 1986, I don't think I knew the last names of um, of Fred and Ethel and and. Uh, I mean, it could have been a character from Dick Van Dyke also. It would have been kind of, I would have felt the same thing. It was just as, as far as everything else going on in the issue, and then that stopped me cold because I had to actually look up the reference or, or realize what he was, uh, who she was referring to. But um, but yeah, it, that, that was one of those things where it was just like, you know, that to me was Byrne showing his age. Mm. Well, he's, I think Byrne is about, he's about 60 now. Yeah, at least, at least. So I guess yeah, but uh, and you you would think uh, this is around what, what year was that? Nineteen eighty six. So you figure Lois was probably supposed to be about thirty years old or so. So she would have been born around fifty six, which would have put her right in the midst of the uh, I Love Lucy syndication when she was uh, you know a youth. Right. It's almost like one of those kind of hipster references where, you know, I'm too cool, so I'm going to just throw this name out to you, even though it was before my time, or it'd be like, you know, me, me calling some dude with mutton chops Thomas Jefferson or something. But, <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, so be it. I mean, if, if, if that's the only thing I can complain about with the issue, then um, I I, uh, I really don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah, really. That's uh, if, if that's the worst thing in the book, it's a pretty, pretty pristine book. Yeah. That's got to be a hard thing to do as a writer to try and pick the age group you're targeting with your references. Right. You know, especially with a character like Superman, uh, because I'm a year older than you, David, and it's, um, I'm with you. I, I wouldn't, I didn't know the reference at the time. I do now, 
but right. it wasn't until I was older that I appreciated things like Dick Van Dyke and I Love Lucy. It's funny if you're throwing the references. I'm like, yeah, yeah, during that era, I, it was on television all the time. But um, I, I too was watching other things. I saw an episode here and there, but the fam- familiarity wasn't enough that I would have known the characters' names either. But like you said, it's it's funny how Byrne did such a great job of having, I think, such a wealth of content that the series remained relevant all the way through, probably to a, a wide array. Because yeah. um, you don't hear a lot of people talk about Man of Steel negatively. Like, I don't right. hear like saying, wow, that really destroyed my impression of Superman. <laughs> Which, I mean, and we're talking about an era where a lot of people were reading comics. So there's a, a, you know, a far larger audience base than today to really condemn <laughs> you know, a particular era, a particular run. And you don't hear that when this, is, this book's talked about. Um, you usually hear people talk about it with um, you know, a degree of reverence or remembering how cool the miniseries was. Um, or you don't hear anything, which, is, which says a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't recall hearing any negatives, to be honest with you. I don't. I don't know of anybody who who was particularly bothered by this series. I mean, there was a little resistance to rebooting it, I guess, but I don't think the. I think it was more in concept than in execution that there was resistance. Yeah. All right. Well, we might as well move on to our uh, third and final book for the day, and I chose Rune Number Zero from Malibu Comics, and this is a character that I have some familiarity with visually, but I had never read any of the books, even though I have some. And so I started off by uh, looking up in uh, the source of all information that is correct, Wikipedia. And uh, <laughs> I have some, some information from there, which I'll just read in here. It's, Rune is a fictional vampire-like being from Malibu Comics Ultraverse imprint. He was created by Barry Windsor Smith and Chris Ohm, and first appeared as a backup story in Sludge Number no. 1, which is another Malibu comic. Rune was a human-like alien in the Ultraverse until he acquired the Star Stones, magical artifacts which made him virtually immortal but cursed him with a monstrous form and a vampiric thirst for blood. Ages ago, he found himself stranded on Earth and has been both worshipped as a god and reviled as a demon throughout history. Rune derives his power from the Star Stones, which he wears around his neck. These absorb the souls and life force of his victims, and he uses them to power various feats of magic. He has vampire-like abilities, including bat wings, allowing him to fly, great strength, speed, and durability, and is nearly impossible to kill, even by decapitation. However, exposure to a nuclear explosion in 1952 has given him cancer and greatly weakened his powers. And issue number zero, I didn't even realize this at the time, it's dated January of 1994. It doesn't actually have a cover price on it, so I'm speculating that this was a giveaway at the time, maybe in Wizard comic, in Wizard uh, or something. Yeah. Uh, and it contains a compilation of 11 three-page stories that had originally been contained in all of Malibu's line in October of 1993. And finding out that little fact actually made reading the book much more palatable. Because when I read it, it seemed very choppy. 
And oh, okay. Knowing that it was three-page stories, it's almost like reading a uh, a newspaper strip and thinking, you know, in, in in a compilation form and thinking, why is this broken up the way it is? You know. Did you guys read? Any of you read the any of the Ultraverse when it was out? Yes. Um, Solitaire, Nightman, Firearm, um, uh, Hard Case. I really wasn't big on um, Mantra. Um, I thought, uh, I thought what's in Prime was there. Uh... Prime. Prime was the flagship. That was the one that kicked it off. Uh, Prime was and good. The, strange- the Norm Brian Fogelhardt. Strang- the, the Strangers was also. Uh, That's the- right. Yeah. I didn't. Um, I wasn't as. I read the ones that appealed to me, whereas with Valiant, I kind of read across the board because they were all connected. Um, I thought Nightman was great. It was. It, it started off with, with Derek Robertson art and then. Uh, Kyle Hotz jumped on it, and uh, that eventually led to a uh, short-lived live-action TV show. But I, I really dug um, the Ultraverse titles that I that I read, that I picked up on a regular basis. Hard Case was a real. Uh, you mentioned that one. That was a sleeper. I, first of all, agreeing with everything you said about Nightman, especially when Kyle Hotz came on, um, I thought that that series, the art style, really blended into the story that was being told. But Hard Case was one of those uh, for an action title at the time. Um, I, I really was liking the character development there. They had some real gems in the Ultraverse, and uh, straight on through till uh, Marvel's acquisition. I, I thought that they were they were doing some unique things. I, I agree with you. Not every title was a home run hit, uh, but the ones that I was uh, I, I started initially reading all of them, and I pared down along the way. But some of the ones that were hits were prime. I thought when it kicked off was phenomenal. <laughs> we 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 covered the first issue of Prime at one point, and uh, I thought it was interesting that at least in the beginning, because I, w- I went into it already knowing that it was a uh, basically it was kind of the Shazams with the young boy becoming Prime, but they didn't reveal that initially, and it was interesting reading that with the foreknowledge of it. And and seeing how they were just giving some clues, but they weren't coming out and telling you at the beginning that that was the case. Yeah. But just to, to jump back to Rune for a minute, uh, or for a couple of minutes even, uh, the <laughs> the first thing that jumped out at me is on the cover, uh, the heavy use of like pastel coloring in it, which just like it really stood out because it, it's kind of a dark storyline, and to have such a light and almost uh fluorescent coloring to the to the to the cover and even the interior art just seems to to contrast that and yet it really really seems to work especially with you know the uh what i would call beautiful barry windsor smith art uh throughout the book and uh that is my recollection of when marvel acquired the uh, malibu uh line was the story was that they were looking more to obtain their color uh, processes than they actually were the characters, which could explain yes. why none of them actually exist in uh, current publication, which is a shame because there's some decent characters and stories that could be used. But the uh, the story was uh, drawn by uh, Barry Windsor Smith and written by Smith and Chris Ulm, and it was edited by uh, Steve Gerber, of all people. Oh, wow. Who, who I, I have a tough time 
conceptually thinking of Steve Gerber trying to rein anybody in. <laughs> That's a good point. His, his stuff was always so far out. But I, I, you know what? Maybe he was just the opposite as an editor. Maybe he was saying, come on, you're too constrained here. You know, go a little wild with this. Uh, but but like I said, it's, it's in three-page three uh three-page arcs. There's 11 three-page arcs, and the first one uh, starts with, you know, him playing with his runestones. Then we uh, go to the next one. You know, basically, the first one tells us who he is. The next one, we go to Africa in 303 AD, and you could see he's looking big and fit, and uh, he's basically being worshipped as a god, uh, but he doesn't even care about the people who are worshipping him uh, to the point where he... uh, he he hasn't even bothered to learn their language because he thinks their lives are so finite, it's not even worth bothering with it uh we cut to another scene where he's meeting with uh nikola tesla the electromagnetic inventor and uh for a second tesla sees him in his true uh countenance and then he's gone but he leaves a rune stone for uh tesla then we cut to uh the uh nuclear testing in 1952 which based on the uh the Wikipedia entry I, I read, it, it shows him in basically in the heart of an explosion, and that's where he uh, contracted the cancer that will uh, torture him throughout the series. Uh, we go to uh, 1993 in San Francisco, and uh, I, I, that, that, actually that element of the story kind of confused me because he meets up with some guy who's in an accident, and he helps the guy home, and then the guy starts to hulk out, and then Rube feeds on him. And he's only able to hold the energy temporarily because of the cancer. Uh, but I don't understand exactly why the guy is hulking out or anything, and they don't really explain that. Uh, then we cut to uh, Arizona, and we see he's basically being tracked by the military. And uh, he, uh, he he basically turns the hunter into the hunted uh, and goes after them. And, and they're giving you little clues as to his story and how it's going to go, because at one point he, he screams out and he says, Where's the boy? but they never tell you who the boy is. But then in the next scene, we see a young man on on a phone and he looks like he's in his 20s, but the way the story is written, you'd think he's significantly younger because a guy comes in who looks like Rune, who says he's the young man's father and that the young man is being uh, punished and he's being basically grounded to the house, which doesn't really seem like something for a guy in the 20s. And then we see Rune outside his window kind of salivating, waiting for a feast on the young guy. Uh, and that's, that's the only rune story I've read so far, but it definitely makes me want to pick up the rest of the series and, and see, you know, where, where the character goes from here. Cause for, for a 33 page story, there's a lot of meat there and there's a lot going on and there's a lot to build on. Uh, did either of you read this as it was coming out or even after it came out? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I was kind of, um, that was around the time where I was sort of out of, um, out of things. I wasn't, uh, I couldn't, I was, I was living on my own. So, so comics were a luxury. I, I wasn't, uh, I couldn't afford. It's, it's one of my laments about the comic, uh, about comics in general <laughs> all the time is that, uh, you know, when, when we were 10 years old, we were able to buy basically everything on the stands with our allowances. And then, you know, you get into your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and it's like, yeah, I can't afford these. Yeah, you're right. Which is just depressing when you think about it. <laughs> you asked a question about the guy hulking up. Um, 
there was an event that happened in the books, and, and you're going to have to forgive me because I'm trying to remember back when I was reading at the time, but there was something that jump-started Ultras. Um, there were there were people because of uh, some form of um, energy burst, because that's what happened to the Strangers, the, the, the main superhero team that first kicked off in the Ultraverse. There was something that jump-started them, and it it resonated in other people. So there were people who were popping up that may and may not have to, they had them. Um, really cool to see with what you're saying about the anthology series though. I, I, I enjoy them for exactly that reason. It gives, gives you a chance to experience some things that you might not otherwise see that, a that a publisher might not otherwise let have, have the a run of it. And I'm, I'm thinking about less, from a Marvel Comics Presents point of view, where they would put, what do they generally have, three or four stories in each issue, or three four. or four? four. Uh, I'm, I was thinking more, you know, and I guess it's just more because it's what I grew up with, you know, back in the days when you had Marvel Spotlight and Marvel Premiere and Showcase, and they would all just run different things for a couple of issues and then move on to another title character. And and I, I always enjoyed that, and it, like I said, gave me exposure to characters I might not otherwise have read. I, I I loved World's Finest for that reason. I mean, it was it was one of the same thing with Batman Family and Superman Family. It was DC's dollar books, and you had the main feature, which was twelve or so pages, and then you had like with World's Finest, you had Batman and Superman teaming up, and then you'd have a Green Arrow short, or you'd have Nemesis, or you'd have um um, but it would just some of them would continue over into the next issue, others would um. They'll be be done in one um, for a long time in the seventies to to before the uh, the implosion. You had um, you know you had backups. You had airwave in the back of, in the back of um, Green Lantern comic books. Um, I huge fan of Dark Horse Presents. Um, I I love anthologies and and I I love them more when. Back when DC had new talent showcase and and you were introduced to new new creators, you know, and instead of instead of giving someone who and it, just from my way of thinking, I'm sure things have changed now, but you know, you don't give someone unproven uh, a three issue arc. You know, they they earn their spot by handing in work, consistent work. And Marvel Comics presents, and and once you know they 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 get used to what the work entails and, and how to do the job, then you can uh, give them a book that they, that they can carry. And it worked for Mark Bagley. He he won, if you want to call it that, the Marvel tryout book, and it ended up with uh, New Warriors and Amazing Spider-Man. And, and the the cool thing about that was. You know, when you've got books like that, you get people who have a creative desire to really say, I'm going to give you my best. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to throw stuff at you, even though it's raw and, you know, it's early in their career where you're seeing, you know, I just think people will lay it all out and say, wow, I'm going to try to tell you a story that's going to make you force you to take notice of me. Uh, so that way people talk about this book and they hire me to one of the bigger books because of it that's i'm a fan of that kind of stuff for just what you're saying and you get to know the talent that way yeah, which yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that I mean, you gotta, you gotta all... be careful with that to some extent because then if you remember when when they came out with marvel fanfare 
it was it was almost the opposite of that. It wasn't the young and upcoming talent and hey, here's a shot to uh, make a name for yourself. Instead, it was uh, you know the, the basically the uh, inventory issues that they that's had exactly laying around. That's exactly what they were, right? Yeah, and that's I mean that's um, which were still great. It's just that you know you didn't have whether. Perez left Marvel to, to go work at DC or he couldn't finish this Black Widow story or they never put it in Daredevil or wherever they were or give him his own Black Widow miniseries so that's where you have to put it you know John Byrne has a Hulk story he wants to tell and this is before he took over he, he swapped with Mantlo um, with Alpha Flight but you know Byrne has a Hulk story give him 12 pages in uh, Barry Windsor Smith with that awesome April Fool's Day story mm. from Marvel Fanfare with Human Torch and, and the Thing. Mm. Um, there were just, um, you know, I, I I love Marvel Fanfare, but it is, it, it's like Paul says, it's it's the other end of that spectrum where it's not, uh, it's not characters you don't get to see too often and it's not by creators who you're not familiar with. Marvel Fanfare was kind of the, um, you know, it was almost... And and this probably isn't the case, but it, it's almost like you know Al Milgram had some friends, and he's like, "Hey, I want to I want you to do a couple pages for me." And but you know, was, was it even that? Was it that they were doing it for Marvel fanfare, or is it that they no, had done it no, no, and no, it they was weren't. just an inventory story? That's exactly what it was. It it's was, it's it like was, going to the refrigerator and eating leftovers, yeah. and some of them happen to be delicious. They they had <laughs> uh, you know that's true, but but yeah, Milgram had you know there were drawers full of of stories that they didn't know where to put and and uh you know i mean and you even had um there was a falcon miniseries by although no he was known at the time jim owsley and and that started off with um paul smith artwork in the first issue and um as much as coletta tried to ruin it and then you had (laughs) uh uh, mark bright doing the um the last three issues and then you also had a, a wonder man one shot penciled by Kerry Gamble and again, unfortunately, inked by, by Vince Coletta. But you had that was supposed to be the start of, I think, an ongoing. Um, and then I think it was downgraded to a miniseries. And then finally, eventually, just this double sized one shot. And um, you don't, you still will get maybe the, um, the inventory story, but they kind of frame it. So that it, it it's still somewhat relevant to uh, to whatever story is going on right now, um, but you also don't have the inventory stories because it's it's very easy to just have after an artist does three issues, have somebody else come and do the next four, and then that artist comes back and does the next three. Um, so there isn't. I don't think you have that sense of um, if I don't put this issue out, I'm going to lose my spot and and. Uh, and they're going to think less of me. I can only do eight pages a week. And if they only get 10 issues a year out of me, that's what they're getting. And um, it's it's a different era than when we were reading comics. I mean, John Byrne wrote and drew, wrote and penciled Superman and wrote and penciled Action Comics. And those came out every month. So uh, it, it's a different mindset. Not everybody's a Mike Norton or a Scotty Young or, um, you know, you just you don't have I don't get that sense that uh, that the artists these days have that um, have the same work ethic as as the, the artists that I followed growing up. I don't know if it's it's the work ethic or if it's the uh, <laughs> distractions, 
Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's part of it. You know, I mean, first of all, it seems like there's a uh, a major con they can attend every weekend if they want, uh-huh. uh, and and they can make a you know a nice nice little uh, load of money on the side doing some commissions. Uh, but also, I think that there's a there's a, a little bit of it. I, I I try to put the positive spin on it. And I think a little bit of it is just the perfectionist in them, uh, especially in this digital age where it's so easy to take something and say it's not quite the way I want it. Let me try and work on this a little more. I, I more volatile of an industry too, though. Like you could get away with back then with the numbers and with the costs. You could do a book like Marvel fanfare. You could do anthologies. And, and give them, like, some real shots. People, you know, could jump on and, and tell, like, this story about this, you know. You mentioned the Green Arrow backups. You could do backups back then. And, and yeah. they were, you know, it was a different era where people would pick up a book and, and be glad to have. Um, Marvel Fanfare is a great example of a book you can't get away with today. The cost is too high. People would not take a risk. Because the risky venture of those titles always is, for every great story you're going to get throughout that book, you're going to get some ones that are, depending on your preferences, stinkers, or fall somewhere in the middle. And I like the kind of roll of the dice, because you get a chance to then, those gems, when you find them in there, are just so worth the price of admission to see them. The problem is with the market nowadays and how expensive it is, people can't do that. Uh, I think your, your artists that can't keep up and can't do the, the monthly book, um, they're like you said, the perfectionist thing, maybe there's a certain point to it. There's a lot of pressure on them to say those issues that I do deliver have got to get people talking so much that they'll want to put on somebody for a few issues to then have me on the next arc. And, you know, keep that kind of thing going. The guys that can do it monthly are under a lot of pressure because they've got to get them. They've got to compete often with those guys that are the quick fix, short term, bring them in. They're the big name, if that makes sense. And it's a very, very different era where your workhorses, your guys that like are really talented and are able to do the monthly book, a lot of times get lost in the background. And I'm not saying it's right, because there are people that I really like, <laughs> you know, mm. as far as, because they're storytellers. And their focus is, hey, I my job is, I will, I've got a story that I want to tell from issue one to issue 12 of this year, and get it in there. And I'm not knocking either perspective. It's just a very interesting era on what sells and what's pushed and what isn't. Uh, and mainly a lot of this that I'm talking about is with the big two. It looks very different when you look at like an image or a dark horse and, and what they're doing with their product. It's funny how it looks with the big two now. Um, it's an interesting era. Um, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree or disagree with any of it. Um, it's, it's not the same, I think, as when we were growing up where you would have lengthy runs with certain artists that you can really identify that doesn't seem to a Mark Bagley is an outlier, you know, with his run on like ultimate spider that, that stuff doesn't happen very often anymore. A John Romito jr's long run on uh, Spider-Man books, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. anymore. It's true. 
unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, people, tend to, people tend to need to jump in order to – it just seems to be the case. Whereas I'm more of a fan of seeing story growth from a creator on a title. Um, so it, it's, it's real interesting in this era. And un- unfortunately, there's an emphasis on, you know, and, and it's purely a business thing, and I don't blame them for it, no. but there's, there's more of an emphasis on drawing pages that can be resold at a premium. Uh, so, you know, a poster page is a great thing because you're going to make a lot of money off of it, as opposed to working on your craft in storytelling very often. And I still love my comics. So nothing of what I'm saying is um, anti-comics, or it's just a very different sort of era. No, I don't think anybody's going to accuse any of the three of us of not loving. <laughs> yeah, comics. no, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, but you know you you don't want to put blinders on to what goes on around you either. You know you you, you do you you know you see the pluses and the minuses of it, and and the plus is hey if I buy a uh, a poster page from uh, Jr. Junior. And I hang it on, I frame it and hang it on my wall. That's a beautiful thing to have. The minus is maybe the story isn't quite as good because he put a poster page there instead of letting the story develop. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's 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 a tough thing, but uh, especially in this day of tablets, I, I hate the double page spreads. Uh no, I don't. I, for me, hate's a strong word. Um. I know that they, when they serve a purpose, um, there were, uh, there have been a few in Superior Spider-Man, which I think are fitting. Uh, There were a couple in the latest issue, Avengers World, which made sense for the story because Shang-Chi was was tapping into um, two old warriors. Um, But the way they were laid out it almost didn't make sense, especially on a tablet. But um, depending on the type of tablet you have, you may not even have to turn the uh, the tablet 90 degrees to, to see the whole image. But um, mm-hmm. I can see why uh, people who primarily use tablets, like I do, uh, why they would um, not be keen on seeing so many double-page spreads. The interesting thing to me, and and this is purely uh, conjecture on my part as opposed to knowledge of historical fact, but it seems to me like the double-page spread came into vogue uh, really when Kirby went over to uh, D.C., and that was basically a staple of his work there. Every every uh, book he wrote, the second, you know, when you, you, had, you had your splash page and then you turned it and you had a double page spread. Oh yeah. And and I think you know back then they really weren't selling artwork for very much at all. In fact, I seem to remember going to some hotel shows back then and they had pages. You know, if it was expensive, it was twenty five dollars. You know, uh, but I th- I think the the purpose of that probably was more because he was pumping out so many pages a month that it just gave him a break because he could do a double-page spread so much faster than having to do, you know, a nine-panel grid. I found that I'm a fan of them when there's a storytelling purpose. Right. And and I think, like, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily, because I, I read a lot of my comics now on a tablet as well. I really enjoy that delivery method. I find that when I'm flipping it and I see a double-page spread and it's such a, like, it's been built to that, 
and it's an integral part of the story, like where they're showing me something visually that I need to see on that scale, or they're doing something unique with the panels where I don't mind zooming in on my tablet, you know, and, you know, doing the whole finger flick and, you know, zooming in on things when there's a storytelling reason to do it. Uh, I think that we were in an era where artists are brought in for the purpose of just doing the big splash. And sometimes it's put in and forced in, in a way, although I think that is happening a little less now. I think we're getting more of your storytellers that are coming back into comics and they're more in the forefront because I think we're in an era where delays people are very critical of nowadays. <laughs> I think a lot of our guys who are capable of like keeping that going are starting to kind of lead the charge. But to me, when a splash page comes on, if it's not there for a storytelling reason, it's the whole effect is lost. I wow me. And the only way to do that is to build to it. Or if you're starting with it and it's leading to something because you just like, okay, you shocked me with this. Where's that going? Um, that works for me then. That's, it's always got to be the case. It's the ones that are jarring, you know, where it's like, what did you do this for? <laughs> that, um, you know, other than to make a poster in an era where posters aren't really selling an awful lot. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, the one, the one that jumps to mind to me, <clears throat> I think it was. Uh, and we're going way, way back here, but I'm thinking Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One, and uh, Spider-Man against the Sinister Six, and he basically had a showdown against each member, and as he met each member, there was a splash page of him fighting that guy, yeah. and it almost seemed to have an effect to it. And and back then, and you know whatever it was, 1964, 1965, uh, you could easily envision a kid buying the book. And then tearing those pages out and hanging them on their wall. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you wouldn't be buying it as a collector's item back then. You're buying it just to read it. So it, it, there was a different, you know, it was a different era. And it seemed to serve more of a purpose in that book. And it was something special that stood out. I used to get tracing paper uh, over my comics. Cause, I think we yeah. all did. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm a hor I'm a horrid artist, so I mean I don't I never had any illusion that like I was going to be anything other than I just enjoyed the book so much that it was fun to trace the cover and to try and color to try to do something that might look and, and honestly tracing was the only way that I could get remotely close and I didn't even do that well, but um, it was because you're tracing over it you're putting pencil marks on the yeah, book you're in, you're putting the indenting. Yeah, the indenting on it. And I, I would still keep reading those books till, you know, I was blue in the face. And uh, it was it was interesting to, um, you know, to try to touch a part of the creativity of comics in a way that I knew that I didn't really. I, as a kid, I never really felt like I had a talent for it other than the fact that I was these people who create these books had so touched me in a way and they still do in a way that uh, just keeps me passionate for the, the storytelling that they do. Oh, when I was a teenager, I had this absolute misguided thought that I was going to be an artist one day. It was totally misguided because I didn't have anywhere near the talent level that any of these people have. You know, but, but, you know, when you're 16, you think, you know, <laughs> you think you can do no wrong. <laughs> Then you get a little, you get a little older, you get a little perspective, and you realize it. But you know, it was fun. Uh, just from that same perspective, is uh, 
you know, trying to recreate other real artists' work. And uh, I had the the book, the collection book, the uh, the Art of Neil Adams, and there was a picture in that that I tried to recreate. And when I had a chance to sit down and talk to Neil Adams one day, I started telling him about it, and he knew exactly the picture I was talking about, and we talked about how it was laid out and how he did it and everything. And it's really fascinating to to approach a conversation from from that perspective, especially with a guy like him who you know you. He's he's just a fountain of information once you get him talking. That's true. It's funny how, um, you know, myself. There was times where I've I've tried in my life to write. You know, like I would I had this illusion that I would be a writer of comics because I knew I had zero artistic talent. So I would write things. And one thing I found quickly for myself, just that I didn't have the talent in either area, but I really loved being a fan. It has led, though, in my adult years. To me, being a lot more, even if it's material that doesn't resonate or with me personally, a lot of respect for anybody who's out there finishing off a comic, getting their dream out there on paper, um, trying to connect with that audience who it does resonate with. Because just because it doesn't meet, doesn't connect with me, doesn't mean that it doesn't have an audience. It does. It just wasn't me. Um, I'm, I admire that people are able to do that because I've dabbled in it. You know, I traced. Uh, and the, the trick is, honestly, if I had spent the time that these people do on the craft, maybe I would have. I just didn't. I didn't have the drive, the desire for it, the hard work. It takes a lot <laughs> to put yeah. these books together. It really does to do it and do it well and to complete it. And it amazes me. Um, even when people are at their very early stage, the completion of a project, getting it out there, whether, you, you know, and nowadays it's a lot, there's a lot more avenues to it. I think with your Kickstarters and things like that, which I'm glad to see, you know, where people can get that dream if they have the desire out there. Um, that's just something for me that um, it just coming from the kid's standpoint of actually tracing over my comics. Yeah, I admire today the amount of people that are able to do it and do it so well. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, most of the guys who are doing this at this point, you know, if they haven't already set up a career doing it, they usually have a day job or something that they're doing in the, in the meanwhile. And, and, you know, doing it at night, just trying to, to take their chance, take their shot at it. Uh, it, it really is impressive, the, the amount of commitment that they have to make to this stuff. Thanks a lot for coming on with me here. I, I really <laughs> enjoyed this. Here's the sad part. I'm looking at this. I'm like, that's about right. <laughs> What's that? Uh, uh. <laughs> I'm looking at this and I'm like, that's about right. That shows you there's something wrong with me. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm I'm looking at the time. You know, oh, you know, oh, like, okay. I'm looking at, you know, I've, I see your name, David's name, and I see the, we're almost at the three hour mark. I'm like, yeah, and then yeah, uh, that's when about I, right. yeah, I have to do a little bit of editing. I'll probably end up cutting about 20 minutes out of it for the different <laughs> breaks that we had and whatever. And it'll end up being a two and a half hour show, which is, uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's an average episode for either of you guys, but it's a little, a little, a little bulky for me. <laughs> but I, I, you know what? I was just enjoying talking to you guys so much. I didn't want to, try and streamline it at all i really had a good time yeah, same here I, I did too it was really nice uh, it was it was great the i thought the choices were wonderful it was um it was nice to reminisce about uh really some very diverse eras <laughs> that were very cool to talk about well you know if, if you guys are game uh 
you know, obviously it's not going to be a uh, something that we're going to be able to do uh, all that frequently. But if you guys are up for it, well, you know, in a couple of months we'll do it again, and uh, maybe we'll we'll switch it over. And uh, I don't know. Let's see what what would we do then? Uh, who would take the independent? I don't know. We'll figure it out. But maybe uh, we could we could try this in another time because, like I said, I enjoyed it, and I don't think either any of us would uh, run out of uh, topics to discuss. No, I don't think so. No, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely be up for doing it again, <laughs> touching on something. Uh, um, I'd gladly do an indie. I have uh, that would be kind of fun. So. Well, you know, you know what I mean. For for the purposes of of this. Uh, I'm very flexible as far as format goes. So if, if if you have something that you think I'm passionate about this book and I'd like to bring this one to talk about it, uh, I don't really care if we don't end up Marvel DC Indie and we have to do some other combo or whatever. You know, it doesn't really matter. Like, uh, that's, you know, the format isn't written in stone. Okay. So I'll, you know, I'll be in touch with you guys down the line. And uh, like I said, we'll... Uh, We'll come up with another day, but thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, and like I said, I had a really good time. Same here, man. David, good to talk with you again, buddy. Same here, dude. It has been a long time. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.